On this episode of Of Mechs and Men, Dan drops off some baggage. Kim understands the assignment. Yuri Naga surrenders his silence. And Justin gets what he deserves. This is Of Mex and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Cannon Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. It's me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How are we doing, boys? Well, I haven't been in a shootout, nor have I had Chinese food today, so I'm only doing okay. Well, that's good, because this week we're covering chapters 5 through 11, to wrap up the first part of the book we've been working through. Warrior Repost by Michael A. Stackpole. Let's get into it. Chapter 5. We open with Dan Allard riding in this air car. He's on Zaniah 3, right? This is where Morgan is. This is where the monastery is. He's racing across the desert in this air car. He's not driving. This other guy is driving, Brother Keith, and they're headed to St. Marinus. That's the monastery where Morgan Kell is. And they're chit-chatting. This whole chapter is them just riding and talking about stuff. There's a lot of Dan like kind of like talking to this guy, but also simultaneously having this like internal monologue with himself. Yes, he's very conflicted. <laughs> there's a lot of that. There's there's a lot of uh, internal conflict occurring for sure. Some light brooding, if you will. Dan asks Brother Keith about Morgan, and he says that Morgan Morgan's doing well. He's all right. He never joined the order. He points that out because, you know, there's an order of monks. It's not Brother Kell. Morgan's been hanging out here, but he never actually joined the order. But he's still here. I think that's called a squatter, right? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of internal conflict, we get this bit where Dan is just reflecting about when he joined the Kellhounds. It was so cool. It was so cool. He was so excited back when he first joined. It says that Dan was the youngest New Avalon Military Academy graduate. It says he graduated at 18. Yeah. And he got a letter from Hans Davian, personally, assigning him to the Kellhounds. Is this weird? So it looks like Hans himself assigned Dan to the Kellhounds. That's what this says. I thought that was interesting. I wondered about that as well. With the Kellhounds being a Merc unit, taking a graduate out of the Military Academy and then assigning them over to... An independent Merc unit. Well, independent in quotation marks, but it is strange. I lack the knowledge myself to like answer any question here. I, uh, I also found it peculiar. I was like, oh, okay. And of course, Brother Keith asks about Mallory's world, right? Everyone wants to know about Mallory's world. <laughs> I do like this bit where Brother Keith is talking about that book. This guy, Jay Mitchell wrote a book about the Mallory's World incident called Hell's Anvil. And 
I like Dan says he got it mostly right. Uh, he's like, yeah, it's all right. But he says that he heavily fictionalized the last third of the book. <laughs> he didn't really get it. That was all. He made that stuff up. It was heavily fictionalized is what he says. Because Jay didn't really know what happened. He had to make up his own explanation for why the Kellhounds were able to hold off the sword of light. It's, they're like, how did they even pull it off? And this is where Dan tells, Dan tells his story about Mallory's world. We know about what happened here. This is Dan's side of the story. He talks about how Morgan brought his archer down and challenged Yorinaga to the duel. And the two mechs closed in on each other. It is funny where Brother Keith mentions the archer closed in on the Warhammer. Isn't that weird? Like, oh yeah, the archer is, his whole thing is that he's got the missiles. I have seen this phenomenon on the board game, and I think it's strictly because of those hand actuators. The The archer does look like it's a bit of a boxer, and people have had, a, in my experience, have had a tendency to uh, use it as so, even though it's got all of those LRMs. <laughs> but I don't think that's what's going on here. It says he just used the lasers. He just came in, they were just kind of going back and forth. Yorinaga, he was staggering the PPCs, right, managing that heat. Eventually, of course, Yorinaga gets a good hit with the PPC, cuts the arm off. And that's when, of course, the targeting image of the archer disappears from everyone's computers. You know this one. It's the Phantom yep. Mech. <laughs> now, I do like, I don't know if this has been mentioned, Dan brings up that Morgan here does eventually fire his LRMs, but they're too close to arm. So he just like batters the Warhammer with missiles they just they just smack in the warhammer with all these lrms that has to be pretty disorienting though sure i don't know how effective it would be for anything other than that but uh i mean it does say it kind of like nicks the metal doesn't it i recall there being some small passage about its effect the way they describe it is they battered the warhammer crushing its armor and bathing the mech in fire as propellant exploded missiles spun the yeah. warhammer but somehow Yorinaga kept the mech on its feet. That's it. He kept it up. And this is where Yorinaga shoots all his weapons, but he can't hit them, right? He's shooting the missiles, shooting the thing. He can't hit them. What's going on? I mean, the spirit mech thing going on here aside, this fight's wild. This is a, this is a weird one. Both Yorinaga and Morgan are not really using their mechs in the right way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, They're not really pushing for the most effective methods of combat. Well, and neither of them being like a close range dueling style yeah. mech. Yeah. yeah. Both LRMs and it is a common misconception that you can't fire your PPCs in that minimum range. You can. It is just difficult. But still, it's kind of a weird choice. It is. And it keeps everyone who was there. They never forgot Mallory's world. 3016. Very interesting series of events here. Morgan was like, 1v1 me, Yorinaga. And he did. <laughs> oh, and of course, don't forget, Morgan gets the archer up off the ground. Yorinaga's missed with all of his weapons. Morgan doesn't return fire. Instead, of course, he bows. I like when he gets this part of the story, Brother Keith is like, he bowed? What do you mean <laughs> he, he bowed? Hold on real quick. I'm vindicated, okay? From the Panther incident, clearly mechs do sometimes ceremoniously bow, okay? 
That is all. Yeah. Morgan was just leaning over to get a closer look at something. <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe I'm not completely vindicated. <laughs> but it does happen. Yeah. But wait, wasn't the panther... Didn't we determine that it was probably bowing to the Archon designate? Yes. <laughs> that was... The, we were like, oh, actually, now that we think about it, now that we know what happened, it was the... the uh, Yeah, he was, he was probably bowing as like a show of respect once he realized what he was looking at. So what you're saying is I'm not vindicated at all. That's correct. We already determined, and I just forgot. <laughs> Understandable. We could scurry along, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I like how after Brother Keith gets the part where Dan tells him that Morgan took a bow, Brother Keith tells him that, I think that Mitchell's account was more believable, actually. The yeah. Book, yeah, I, I, I think the book was actually more believable than, what are you talking about? Are you serious? <laughs> And uh, Dan's like, I'm dead serious, bro. I'm serious. My brother here is literally like, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> it, and don't forget, after Morgan bows with his archer, Yorinaga bows with his warhammer. And he cracks open the canopy. And this is where Brother Keith says, oh, that's when he threw those swords out. And Dan's like, how do you know about the swords? That's not the swords book. weren't what in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Brother Keith tells him that the swords are hanging on Morgan's wall. They're still there. He hung the swords up. <laughs> this is wild. That part catches Dan off guard a little bit because he's like, oh, I guess Morgan did keep those. Yeah. He's like, oh, he kept the swords? Weird. And yeah, this is where, of course, this was Yorinaga ordered the retreat and they began to withdraw. And of course, Brother Keith asks about the death haiku. He says, what about that death haiku? And Dan tells him, I don't really think it was a death haiku. I've heard it translated as yellow bird I see, gray dragon hides wisely, honor is duty. You know, he gives him a little bit, a bit about, you know, the yellow bird is the enemy of the dragon. And they believe that, you know, Yorinaga saw something in Morgan or in the Kellhounds that posed some kind of uh, danger to the combine. Something happened and Yorinaga had to go. And... A great timing. He, they're just finishing up the story as they pull up to St. Marinus. Now, after reading the recount of the fight on Mallory's world, uh, I went back and reread the original recount in uh, Warrior On Guard when we got it from yeah. the Combine point of view. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting that none of the details are different. The tone is different because Dan's recount of the fight seems to be more somber, more like an inevitable loss for the Kellhounds. But then Interesting. the outcome seemed just as confusing to both sides. <laughs> Interesting. That's pretty good. I didn't think about that. Yeah, reading them side by side. But you're saying all the details line up, all, all yeah. the little stuff. Interesting. Okay. Isn't that interesting? That means that it's very likely that's the truth and both sides agree. Yeah. They're both being honest about it. That's what happened. It's weird. Everyone who tells a story is like, that's weird. Like, yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah. Anyway, they went into exile for 12 years. <laughs> yeah. Both of them. <laughs> both Separately. Of them. Separately. <laughs> <laughs> how funny is that? <laughs> We're about to find out exactly how funny here in a moment. Yeah. So they pull up, goal wing doors. It's cool. Actually, it's pretty hot. <laughs> they go on multiple times about how hot this planet is. It is very hot. It is, yes. 
It is very hot. Oh yeah, right. We get some. <laughs> we got some more parallels. Remember when mm -hmm. we went to get Yorinaga? It was very cold. It was freezing cold. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And now we got yeah. Morgan's on the hot world. <laughs> we love parallels. There's a bit of a fire and ice thing going on here. Absolutely. Oh, I do love when they pull up. Another brother of the order is there, brother Giles. And Dan looks at him and he thinks, "Is that Herman Steiner?" <laughs> I saw, I've seen this guy. That guy looks just like Herman Steiner. And the dude walks up and tells him, "Oh, hello. I'm Brother Giles. I'm the abbot of Saint Marinus. You know, welcome." And Dan's looking at him as he's talking, and he thinks, "This is that's him. This is Herman Steiner." It's the spinning image. And so we learn, there's just this little bit where it says, Steiner was the man who resigned his commission as commander of the second Royal Guards to keep those who supported his brother, Alessandro, from using him as a force against Katrina Steiner. So this is where he ended up. Interesting. So we have another exiled mech warrior who's been missing. No one knew where he went, it <laughs> seemed. At least Dan didn't. And he's like, oh my God, it's that guy. <laughs> and uh, it's just funny. He... He doesn't say it out loud. He's like, oh, uh, thank you, Brother Giles. Which, speaking of, he spends most of this time clearly in this internal monologue because the words that Brother Giles says to uh, Dan, he clearly ignores. Yeah, Dan's just sitting here thinking about, like, what is this, some kind of, like, retired mech warrior planet? <laughs> As yeah. yeah. Giles is sitting there telling him, like, I'm concerned about his well-being and sanity. Dan's like, this is so weird. <laughs> this might be... Dan at his most Grayson. Yes. <laughs> yes. At least we're stepping right. towards it very quickly. Right. Because Brother Giles goes to take Dan to Morgan. But of course, on their way, right, he tells him that uh, he expresses concern about Morgan, right? About how, as he, I think he says, quote, I am concerned about his well-being and sanity. Yeah. He makes it clear that he's his time here has been healing, but that he's still kind of afraid, man. He's not done. Yeah. Morgan has conquered many of the demons plaguing him, but there is still one he cannot control. Yeah, Brother Giles points to the sky and tells Dan something waits for him out there. He's hidden here and he's prayed every day, but now he no longer can. Dan asks him what's waiting for him, and... The abbot pursed his lips, stared hard at the Kelhound captain. I believe what he fears is the encounter with his own death. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, that's the end of the chapter. So that's it. This whole chapter was just Dan mostly dry riding in that air car, talking about Mallory's world. It was, I think, the the most of it was the Mallory's world recap from Dan's perspective. We got a transitional scene with exposition, which means yeah. we're leading into the main course of something. Well, and I also think it does a great job of setting the tone and setting the expectation for the reader into the vibe Stackpole wants you to sit in, which is Absolutely. we've been hyped for the return of Morgan. And then you get into this chapter and all of a sudden it's concerned. It's somber. It's, it's a downer. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a party. This was not, no. you know, we just left Hans and the boys. And this is, you know, this is a little bit of a cooler. Yeah. Despite the heat. <laughs> but he's here. He made it. He is on the doorstep of reuniting with Morgan Kell after 11 years. A legendary mech warrior. Remember, a name that 
a Comstar presenter. It rolled off the tongue cleanly. Oh, not just the presenter, the Primus himself, wasn't it? Indeed. Yeah, not Morgan is one of the most legendary mech warriors. It doesn't take long if you start reading anything about BattleTech. I feel like it doesn't take long until you encounter the name Morgan Kell, right? He lives in the margins for sure. Like you can't get through a Sarna article. Yeah. Should, yeah. It's like what's the Kevin Bacon game? Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, you can absolutely like that. So here we are. We're about to meet him. Again, this is Dan hasn't seen him for 11 years and clearly he has some pretty conflicted feelings he's still working through. So he's not exactly like looking forward to it, right? It's bittersweet, right? Yeah, but yeah. he gave his word. He gets to see him for the first time in 11 years and bring him news of his brother's death. And we'll have to see how the reunion goes in the next chapter. Chapter 6. We open with Dan and Brother Giles riding an elevator up. And Dan is very nervous. He's anxious. It's clear. And elevator goes up. They walk off. Right away, Dan sees Morgan. He's here. He's up here. Right over there, actually. He is tall and lean. Wolf lean, he says. He is wearing only a loincloth. So he's up here in a loincloth, long, black hair, blowing in the wind. He has a beard. It's Morgan Kell, looking like Mech Jesus. <laughs> this fits immaculate. The loincloth? The loincloth fit? Yeah. Uh, I imagine a little bit of that, like, sweet moon dust, that, like, orange moon dust. Yeah. It's the least amount of clothes possible. <laughs> yeah. It's the simplest fit. Lean Wolf, really, I'm going to be honest with you, with Stackpole's economy of words, like, I don't know what it was about the term Lean Wolf, but that and with all the other descriptors in this scene, like, I was just like, oh, I get it. I see exactly what Morgan Kell looks like. Yeah, I took it when I read it. I saw this introduction completely different. When he's describing him, I ended up with the image of like a more barbarian-esque looking guy where like that yeah he, he feels like more of like a conan character coming out here and i really like how stackpole uses those descriptions because i was expecting more of a refined more like elegant morgan kell yeah he's up here looking wild <laughs> but uh i think this is Another kind of theme, though, this is kind of the opposite of Yorinaga, right? Yorinaga, yeah. we've seen he is a man who controls every motion. He hasn't talked. He's in complete and other control of all faculties. And it almost feels like Morgan is this opposition to it. He's wild and raw. He's emotional. Well, you don't see the emotional part yet. But no, I agree completely. That's that's where I thought Stackpole did such a good job of throwing that in here is it really does stand completely different than Yorinaga here. And when Dan walks up on him, Morgan is in prayer. There's this whole prayer. He's just praying. And he says this whole thing when Dan interrupts him and 
Eventually, Dan approaches and walks up behind him. Colonel Kell and Morgan Kell turns around. Right away, Dan notices, oh, yeah, he looks, yeah, I mean, he looks the same. Well, he looks older, but also, he thinks, a little more peaceful. There's this bit where Dan notes that he does appear to have this aura of peace, maybe, that he doesn't, that's, that's what he notices right away. Like, it's the same guy, but he's got different vibes. Morgan has changed. Morgan has changed. Dan's thoughts on it were, he looks so peaceful, so much more restrained than before. Brother Giles was right. But then he continues, but he also looks haunted. Haunted. So Morgan looks at him and first thing he says, oh, you're Dan Allard. (laughs) He knows who he is immediately and he points at his uniform and he says, ah, still with the hounds I see. And Dan tells him, oh, yes, good to see you, Colonel. I like Dan does a little salute and then Morgan does a salute back, but it's clear he hasn't done one in a while. So it's a little, it doesn't look quite natural. Like he almost forgot. And he's like, oh, yes. uh, This all plays out a little awkward, right? Like all of the, it's, it's like they're almost, they don't quite know how to be on the same page and they're kind of like, they're kind of missing each other just a little bit. Yeah. This is, it, it is, you feel like Morgan's been in this other world and now his old life is is has come back and he's like he does seem he's he's a bit shocked i would say he's been liberated that's the word i would use morgan kell has been liberated of responsibility his healing was that freedom from burden so that he could deal with the burden of his trauma right And Dan's here, the awkwardness is both men know what the other person's, as we're about to see, they both know why they're here. So these formalities that they're attempting, the reason it's also awkward is because both men know what's here. Dan knows what he's doing and Morgan knows what Dan's here to do. It's almost th- this lie that's in between them for the moments is what's causing the awkwardness. See, I took it in a different light that Morgan never gave up the responsibility. In fact, the responsibility of the Kellhounds still weighs so heavily on him, as we'll see here throughout this chapter. And to me, the awkwardness was the scene is set that to both these men, this is terrifying. This is the one fear they've held for 11 years is being reunited because that means something has happened to the Kellhounds. Dan doesn't think he retained his responsibility. No. We see shortly after this. So for me, that awkwardness is the fact that both of them are trying to extend out the news, the meeting as long as they can before it gets there until they can't stand it anymore. To that end, I do agree with you. I do think they, they're, as I said, I, as I believe both men understands the meaning of this, I agree that they are kind of biding their time before they have to get into the dirt. At least Morgan thinks he knows because the, the, one of the first things he says is, well, I know why you're here, Dan. It's him, isn't it? And Dan thinks, what? How does he know? What does he... Because Dan assumes he's talking about Patrick, but Dan doesn't say anything. He's just like, huh? And Morgan goes on. He tells him, I knew this would happen someday. I knew it wasn't finished 11 years ago. I've hoped and prayed this day would never come. 
and Dan is just going along. It's funny. They're a little, he's confused for a moment where he, he's like, uh, yes, sir, you and the rest of the Kellhounds. It's, it's very sad, sir. I can imagine that yeah. this whole conversation, both of them have had it in their minds for 11 years, but it, yes. the way it's playing out is completely alien to every scenario they thought of. Dan thought this conversation yeah. would be had with the <laughs> Kellhounds when Morgan returned. Morgan thought this is the news he's been waiting for, and they're both playing by their scripts, but they're completely different. It, Dan doesn't even get a chance to explain before no. Morgan tells Dan. He tells him to return to the Abbott's office, get the packet of messages that I brought with me, Give them to Comstar. I'll join up with you in a couple of days. All right, we'll we'll head out. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. And Morgan, it's so the uh, there's this whole miscommunication where they they're not on the same page because Morgan goes starts going on. No, Dan's like he's not even sad about his brother's death. What's happening? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> They're ships yeah, passing each other in the night, right? Yeah. Like they didn't, they're, it's, they're just going two different directions. Yeah. But as you said, they both know why each other's here, but really it's for two semi different reasons, but yeah. in a way it is the same reason. Good point. But the miscommunication here gets shattered as soon right. as Morgan's kind of going through this checklist and he starts going off about like your Naga Creed is back. I knew it. So tell me, where does Patrick have the Kellhounds now? And that's where Dan yeah. pops off. He pops off. Before we get onto the popping off though, if you take everything that's happened here before the pop off, this set up this like because they were both misunderstanding each other, you can see where Dan's getting more and more frustrated at how Morgan appears to be very blah about the whole thing. Yeah. And I can imagine that's an immediate point of like rage built up of like, how could you not even care your brother's dead? Right. And so, but what this allows for this to happen is immediately this gives like Dan's like metaphorically taking his shirt off. Right. He's like, yeah. Oh hell yeah. no. Yeah. Uh, right. And so instead of getting kind of this, like two people talking with kind of their personas on Dan just throws his in the sand. Yeah. Ex yeah. Because when Morgan asked where Patrick is, this is when, yeah, shocked, stunned Dan stared blankly at Morgan Kell. He just looks at him. Colonel Patrick Kell is dead. Bald hands into fists. Yorinaga killed him. Patrick sacrificed himself to save Melissa Steiner and the Kellhounds. Don't you get it? And Morgan immediately cries out, no. And the hair's whipping around. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. And he falls to his knees. I would never let it happen. Immediately it pops off. That's what yeah. I mean. Within like a paragraph, you're like, oh, we're off to the races. Yeah. It gets it. It gets nuts. <laughs> well, remember when Brother Giles was like, Morgan's in a particularly vulnerable state and yes. <laughs> he's still healing. Dan has forgotten about this already. Yes. If he, yeah. if it, if it made it through his ears in the first place. And yeah. uh, as the other said, we're off to the races. 
Yeah, yeah. Brother Giles was like, Dan, if I have any advice, maybe don't go off on him. And Dan's like, nah. I'm going to go I'm off go on off. him. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go off. It's like, your brother's dead. He died doing cool stuff. How dare you? Yeah. And then Morgan's like immediately shattered. And Dan, instead of being like, uh-oh, he, he's like, time to ball up the fist. The cork's out. We're going hot. But it's perfectly reasonable here. Morgan never considered the possibility that his brother would die performing mercenary work in, <laughs> in like an in like an elite group of mercenaries. That's I don't know. That's what mech warriors do. They get killed. That's their whole thing. Well, with that, I think the setup behind that would be that Morgan's had to tell himself that he's not going to die in order to make sense of his actions for the last 11 years that the Kellhounds are going to be fine with Patrick. Patrick is going to be fine. I'm doing what's best. Exactly. And all of that has come to a head in this moment. It's clear that Morgan believes that the Kellhounds were better off without him and that he came here as a way of protecting them. But Dan has some thoughts about this. Yes, he does. Yeah. A lot of thoughts about it. When Morgan says, I never would have let it happen. Dan's like, never would have let it happen. What are you talking about? If that's true, then why did you abandon us? Right? That's what he says. You just left us. You didn't tell us anything. You just dipped, took a bunch of dudes, and just ruined everything. And then we had to pick up all the pieces. We had to like put the unit back together. <laughs> I this whole time I just see like Dan, like just hard poking Morgan in the chest, <laughs> like sitting there. When he's saying, you broke the Kellhounds, then scampered off to this hellhole. No explanation, no apologies. You just bolted and left us to pick up the pieces. He's just pushing them back and just yeah. going full rude boy with it. Morgan counters, of course, with Patrick and Salome were there. Yeah. I left it in good hands. Yeah. Yeah. Because Dan, exactly. Because Dan tells him, you know, after you left, I had a huge hand. I personally did a lot of work to have to rebuild the unit. And yeah, Morgan's like, what about Patrick and Salome were there? And Dan hits him back. Yeah, they were there emotionally devastated, <laughs> damage that took years to recover. They were not in a state. They were traumatized <laughs> by what you did. Dan was like, you left your girlfriend and your brother Without explanation. <laughs> yeah. It took them years. <laughs> years. And those years fell on my shoulders. How dare you? So I do want to point out, rereading this scene this time, I feel like I, I want to know your gentleman's opinions. This almost mirrors the courtroom scene for me in Unguard, right? Where, like, because, I mean, Morgan Judgment. feels like he... He's yeah. exactly he's yeah. being judged and we're getting two different people's perspectives, just like we were in that courtroom. Right. Yeah. We're getting Morgan's like, listen, this was my perspective. I was trying to accomplish this. And now, obviously, one of them isn't lying <laughs> flat yeah. out. But uh, nonetheless, as Kanan said, there's this theme of judgment. Yeah. And both responded with an emotional outburst. There is no right. more time to think of like tact and decorum here. It is just a full-blown outburst. Patrick exactly. just wanted you to be proud of him. That's all he wanted. Yep. He always said that. He just wished that you were proud of him, Morgan. You know he never took 
the rank of colonel. He stayed a lieutenant colonel the whole time because that was your rank. He knew you would come back. He was saving it for you. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And Dan just keeps rolling with it. He's not even giving Morgan a chance to talk at this point. No, when you look at the text, it's just, you see occasionally Morgan gets a little word in, but it's just huge blocks of text of Dan tearing him up. I like, he tells him, you know what we called it when you left? You know what we called it? We call it the defection. Everyone in the unit refers to it as the defection. Did you know that, Colonel? (laughs) And also, do you know what Patrick said to me? You know what his last words were? He said, tell Morgan, I understand. Of course, this Morgan breaks at this point, slumps forward onto his hands, tears falling upon the stone. He says, I accept your judgment of the evil I did to my brother and Salome. I await an accounting of the pain I have caused you, Daniel Allard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Dan's like, oh, okay. All right. We can get personal. (laughs) Me, personally... He says, well, when you recruited me, I was under the impression, I thought you recruited me because you saw value in me. But then you took all your best guys and you left me behind. He tells him, I assumed you would come, that you had some kind of secret mission, right? I thought, oh, he's up to something. He's going to come to me. He's going to come to his dude and let me in on it. But you didn't. You recruited me, trained me, and then left. And what's with that? Also, I did think it was interesting here that Dan brings up that Morgan took a lot of the elite guys with him and they all left together, but they didn't come here. They all just went somewhere else. Yes. And that was the first thing that started to piece things together for me because we had the mention of the (laughs) notes to send out. Then later on in this episode, we're going to talk about another guy who is somewhere else who gets word and all of a sudden is off. So that's something where you're like, oh, Dan isn't thinking during this time. He's not taking in Morgan's words. He's just listening to throw back to unleash this emotion out of him that's been tearing him up for so long. Morgan tells Dan, though, that he left Dan specifically because he thought the hounds would need him. He says, you got to understand, I left you because you were so important, because I knew they would need you. I couldn't have you leave because you were vital to the survival of the unit. It turns out he was right. Yes, he was right. And Dan's cooled off a little. Dan believes him. He doesn't. He actually like lets off the accelerator here a little bit. He does. He's like, man, is that true? He's like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Dan lets go of the accelerator here and asks a legitimate question for the first time in this exchange where he goes, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us? Yeah. Like, if we're so trustworthy, why didn't you? You could have just told us. (laughs) But Morgan responds that if I told you guys, then you would all want to take action, right? That's your thing. You guys, if I told you that there was something going on, you would want to do something about it. But I felt that to act would have been to die. We had to cool off. That's what he says. To act would have been to die. Because if Morgan had told them, 
that he had to go away because of one man. He doesn't believe that they would have kept themselves from seeking him out. They would have gone to kill Yorinaga. If, if Morgan says, guys, I have to quit because Yorinaga, you guys would have all went and killed Yorinaga, but you would have all gotten yourself killed in the process. See, and here I think is the brunt of our little dispute here, Aaron. Because while I agree in this passage, Morgan says, hey, I did this for the Calhouns. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that's true. But I also think that that was the reality then. But as time went on, things changed. And, and Morgan here is in this monastery and he needed to heal. And letting go of these things is what allowed him undoubtedly some peace and the chaos here is all of these all of this coming back into his life so quickly i'm sure it never entirely left in fact i'm sure that a day didn't go by that morgan didn't think about it but again i do think that he literally had to let go of these responsibilities, as he's saying here. See, my side of it comes from the next paragraph, where my perspective on it is that he never let it go. This has always been another mission to him. This has been a conditional, he's just been waiting for the return of Yorinaga to hop right back into things. As he immediately tells Dan, do you remember what I asked you to tell the abbot? To give them the messages to Comstar and for them to carry them to Starborough so they can be sent. Yes. And once Dan reports that they're in Federated Sunspace on Northwind, he says, good. Send Salome a message. Yeah. Ask her to take the Kelhounds to Thorin. She'll get further instructions there. To me, yeah. that's where I form that idea of this, like, this has just been waiting. He never fully let go. And that's why he never fully healed either. Oh. Was that he was just waiting to act. See... Here it is. This is where I think we actually have secretly been agreeing all along, because what I'm saying is, is that he had to shirk his re responsibility and he did, but it was because of this. And as you said, buying his time. And I think that's what it was originally, but I also think that things went on for some time, but you're right. He doesn't hesitate to take the mantle back up immediately, but I think it, it seems that our, our disagreement here might be a little bit more nuanced than I initially expected. <laughs> Should Morgan have told them? That's a difficult question. Yeah, that is, that's a question I asked myself after reading this. And I'm sure that Morgan Kell undoubtedly asked that question to himself most days he spent on this rock. Yeah, and I think my answer comes from that perspective on what we're just talking about where Morgan Kell in his mind had to shatter the Kellhounds and remove them as a threat to ensure that the Combine's fury over what happened wouldn't be directed at them. And this is where I was getting at his belief in this, I think is, but I'm, I'll be honest with you. I have an answer. I do not think that this was the proper way of go. I think he had the right idea 
I believe he executed wrong. I think Morgan Kell did the wrong thing here. I completely agree with you. I think yeah. I think you're absolutely correct that the clear communication of it and discussing why he did exactly what he did. I feel like what we know about the Kellhounds, they may have been emotional about it. They may have gone yeah. through the ringer for may, it. I think they would have undoubtedly been emotional. Yes. But acting on it, I think there could have been understanding for all of the Kellhounds. I agree 100%. And I undoubtedly think that in a way, Morgan is in a lot of ways paying a debt for his poor judgment here. Yeah. Listen, this wasn't, it sounds like I'm being a little bit more harsh here. I think there was wisdom in his thought here. Like, right, he was being thoughtful in thinking that this was the right thing to do. But I think inevitably it was not. Yeah, shouldering the burden by himself only left problems. Exactly. I think that's amazing that Stackpole is able to get that out of this conversation. When you finish it, I feel like Dan was the perfect person. This is exactly what Morgan needed. Yes. Was not somebody to come in here and be procedural and cold and distant about this. He needed somebody to come in and completely unleash on him so he could feel his guilt. He could feel all of that the way he's been fearing that feeling this whole time. This scene is amazing. Like, it's amazing. It's absolutely it's incredible. incredible. Like, it, it's wild. <laughs> It hits so hard. It hits very hard. I mean, it says so much, too. There's so much. I We've taken our time to unpack this scene. I truly believe there's more to unpack. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about this chapter the most yeah. out of any chapter we've read so far. And I spent an entire week mulling over all those questions and kind of unpacking it. And the fact that there's that much to go through is insane the truth though is is the truth is expeditious and having brought that to a council of people he loves and respects would have inevitably brought about probably a better outcome but some lessons if not all to some extent must be learned through hardship and so here we are i do like how when morgan explains the whole thing. Dan's nodding along and he says, oh, so this is all about Yorinaga and Mallory's world? And you realize, (laughs) oh, he didn't even know. He knew so little. He didn't even know what it was even all about. (laughs) Morgan, he he wasn't sure. Morgan has to be like, yes, this is about Yorinaga. Yeah. Well, he actually says, despite the pain I caused, it appears that my precautions were worth the effort. So it's uh, according to Morgan, it, it it still all seems to be going somewhat according to plan. Yes. If only Dan had understand the exposition and foreshadowing of the car ride over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, also, <laughs> I think Stackpole does a great job of putting Dan in a position in this emotion. You can interpret just how much Dan idolized Morgan prior Absolutely. to Mallory's world. You feel that Dan puts this man in a hero place in his mind and him being afraid of somebody, him being scared of somebody was unthinkable to him. 
this scene sets this web of who Morgan Kell is and how he relates to most of the Kellhounds. And it really, it sets his character up. Like yeah. this is in two chapters. It's like, got it. Which is arguably a little slow for Stackpole, but it's yeah. worth it. Oh, yeah. Because Dan's perspective gives us the ability as readers to sit there and take Morgan off of a pedestal to say this is yes. just a person. This right. isn't a story right. hero. This is a person. And I think that's brilliant. Unfortunately, we, we have to move on from this. Yes, scene. we do. As much as I love this chapter. But if we could, we would talk more. I think yes, truly, we could do a whole episode on this chapter. I agree. I truly think there's way more to unpack, but the show must go on. <laughs> so Morgan tells Dan to go send those messages and hang out in Starborough because they'll be leaving together in a couple of days. And Dan asks Morgan if they're heading to Thorin, where he's instructed Salome to take the hounds. But Morgan tells Dan that they're actually heading to Tharkad because he needs to speak with the Archon. Huh? <laughs> and Boy. Uh, the chapter ends with Dan telling Morgan that, though he regrets the circumstances, it feels right to have him back. And man, in the last bit of this chapter, you're like, oh, it's full steam ahead. <laughs> we are going to get something insane out of this. Yeah, we're moving. It's popping. He's back. <laughs> we're back, baby. Morgan Kell. And we're going to Tharkad. That's that's yeah. one of the most exciting. At, at like the very end, it's like, by the way, we're going to Tharkad. You're like, yes, dude. Yes. <laughs> but before we get to Tharkad, we have someone else we need to meet back on New Avalon in the next chapter. Chapter 7. We're back on New Avalon. We're in the Fox Den Tavern, actually. And <laughs> this is where we meet Morgan Hassock Davian. He's in here. He's hanging out with the boys. They're watching the telly. They're drinking brews because they're watching the... They're actually watching it like on a loop. They keep making the bartender like run it back. Where it's... Uh, so Morgan has accepted Hans's request to be his best man. It made the news, it's on TV, all of his boys are drinking beers, like, hey, there he is, run it back, let's see it again. It's like him shaking hands with the prince, like, that's you, you did it, you're the best <laughs> man. And Morgan is over in the corner, like, kind of sulking. He's, like, sitting yeah. on the corner table, just kind of nursing his beer. It's, it's like, it's only half empty. It's warm at this point. Yeah, he's, he's got it in both hands as he's kind of, like, swirling it around. Yeah. Just yeah. like, it looks like me on the TV, but for right now, it doesn't feel like me. As the boys are just like yelling at the bartender, like, again, again. Yeah, it's so great. His, yeah, his guys are so happy, but he's like, I don't know. I feel weird about it. So he goes to take a walk. He gets up and he's like, I got to get out of here. His guys are like, wait, where are you going? We're still drinking. <laughs> We're still toasting you. And he tells him, oh, I'm just going to get some air. It's cool. I'll be back. It's all right. And so he leaves. He takes a walk. He's got some thinking to do. I did want to point out sodium streetlights. All right. Except for the hum of sodium streetlights. I just thought that was cool. I don't even know if that's real or what is that, but I like that. So 
he's just walking. He's just kind of wandering. <laughs> he ends up like in the park, the Davian Peace Garden. He is thinking about the news coverage, his portrayal in the media. He's thinking about how the commentators love bringing up, oh, he's just like a Davian. He's got the broad shoulders. He's got the red hair. He's a real Davian. He's perfect for the role. He's actually thinking, well, they didn't bring up any of my Hasek traits. For example, he has long hair, like his father Michael has long hair. He's got the top knot, remember? Yeah, he's got that whip and braid. Yeah, and he's <laughs> Morgan has green eyes. He's just thinking about how the media is really dialing in on the uh, Davian similarities, and they're not talking about... He's just thinking about it. This is clearly... He's a man torn. He is Hasek hyphen Davian. It's right there in the name. It's right yep. there in the name. Exactly. <laughs> he is conflicted because this is weird. He's been asked to be Hans Davian's best man at his wedding, and he accepted. Is this cool? Should I mean, I d didn't really. You got to accept. If the prince asked you to be his best man, like, you're not going to not accept. Yeah. You can't ever turn down a chance to be a little extra equal with the first amongst equals. Yeah. You he wasn't you got to take it, but it is weird. He certainly yeah. didn't expect it. There's no way he saw it coming. A, a lot of question of why am I so excited to be able to accept that honor and why does it why do I feel guilty for doing so? Yeah. So he's walking through the park. Oh, and he comes up on this monument this memorial right this is so cool he walks up on this memorial it's not just any memorial yeah look i love the description here all right the memorial is a statue of on the left is a panther like the actual uh i assume the cat and not yes. the mech <laughs> well you know what i you know what i know it's the, the cat because it's not in italics <laughs> and mech names must always be in italics um thanks jason hanza yeah and on the right a wolfhound torn and bleeding from several wounds bared its fangs lunged at the big black cat the dog's defiant spirit was expressed in the suicidal assault for its injuries were portrayed as nearly mortal behind the dog crouching in horror a child peeked at the warring animals through splayed fingers a rope bound around the child's waist extended enough above the sculpture to suggest the child's imminent rescue and to validate the hound's courageous sacrifice. You look down at the plaque in memoriam for those who gave their lives to save the hijacked dropship Silver Eagle. And you realize, oh, dude, this is the Patrick Kell Memorial. Remember, mm -hmm. they talked about this at the end of Warrior On Guard. The symbolism is deafening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is Mendo Waterly level subtle in the yeah. actions. <laughs> it's awesome. This is, this is the Patrick Kell Memorial. It is a beautiful thing. You know what? It's a lot better than the suggestion I made when we were theorizing what this would look like, which was the dogs playing poker in a statue. <laughs> I like oh my God. too. <laughs> <laughs> the dog's playing poker. The memorial does its job because it, it does get Morgan thinking about Patrick. And it even says he's a bit envious when he thinks about Patrick, his sense of duty, right? Patrick knew what had to be done. 
He didn't shirk from his duty. He had a mission. He knew what was required of him, and he jumped right in. He didn't have to double think it. He wasn't conflicted. He was a man of honor, and it's just Morgan's just thinking, man, I struggle with that. He's struggling. He is conflicted. That's This is this whole part of this chapter is Morgan just thinking, man, I'm just so conflicted because, right, he feels like he's betraying his father in some way. By accepting Hans's request, it will only serve to drive his father and Hans farther apart, right? He thinks that, oh, this is going to be like an issue and it's going to cause a whole thing. I didn't want this. It's going to be a mess, but I did. He doesn't want to be a wedge. Yeah. Yeah. He, he explicitly states that they're both his family and that's being weaponized by both sides in his Here mind. we learn Morgan Hasek Davion is the most sane person introduced to us in the plot this far. <laughs> yeah, he's just having normal thoughts about, yeah. <laughs> isn't this concerning, complicated? Yeah, it is. And also you're it right, is, buddy. He's, he's thinking, he's probably got in his head... He is being manipulated. He is being used right. here as a political tool. And, and he's kinda, not ignorant. He gets yeah, it. Yeah. I also want to point out, it's beautiful. Memorials clearly for the living. And it's, it's, in, it's cool that in the scene, we get to see it kind of spark these feelings in Morgan Hasek Davion. Now, am I saying like, oh, memorials are in memoriam. Like, wow, great insight, Brent. But- but truly here, I want I want you to think about, like, if this statue wasn't here, this timeline would be different. Like, things would be different. It literally made him think. Yeah. It is another drop in the pond. And this memorial is causing ripples like everything is in this story, right? And uh, I just wanted to take a moment and appreciate that. That is all. It's a great memorial. They did a great job. You know, let's get that scholarship going. <laughs> get those medals. And they make them out of stone so they last a long time. I wonder if this memorial is still here on New I Avalon. wondered the same thing. Huh. So Morgan is standing there. He's in his feelings, walking to the park. And then a woman screams, right? A shriek, a woman's loud squeal of fear <laughs> came suddenly from the darkened grove. And... It's it's not a laughing matter, except that I know it is. Yeah, it, it's like it's so in the middle of this very thoughtful scene. It's just like and then a woman starts screaming and Morgan immediately leaps into action, bursts through the shrubs. He says this boom comes straight through the bushes. And uh, then we get this scene. Of course, we see this woman being assaulted by three attackers and. Uh, Morgan whips him, though. He fights him off. He, like, roundhouses a dude. Yeah, he goes full Texas Ranger on his mamma jammas. Texas Ranger is a good comparison, seeing how he does (laughs) kick a guy in the butt. (laughs) That's right. Which I thought was a little wild. (laughs) Yeah. It's even more funny in hindsight. Especially in a conversation we're going to have in a few minutes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> i hope he gets hazard pay for that one <laughs> yeah i like when they tell him ain't got your machine robo grunt <laughs> a new one robo grunt is that like a dirt pig <laughs> <laughs> no it's something different so 
the dudes run off, by the way. It's not like he like knocks them all out, actually. He kind of like knocks them around a little bit and they're like, oh, we got to scram. And they all go <laughs> running. And they skedaddle, turns, if you yeah, will. I yeah. was thinking skedaddle as well. <laughs> they, they totally skedaddle. And Morgan turns to the woman and, you know, she's down on the ground. He crouches over. He asks her if she's hurt and she seems visibly shaken. Of course, we get the bit, you know, it's cold out here. He puts his jacket on her, takes the jacket off, puts the jacket on. And uh, yeah. Oh, classic. This is where things immediately start ramping up to the point of comical level interest in Morgan here. It escalates quickly. Puts the jacket on her. That's a good move. Yeah. Okay. Kim could have taken it a little easier. I mean, we listen. <laughs> I didn't forge her. Listen, we don't. It's Kim Sorensen. Okay. Everyone, <laughs> this is what's so funny about it, right? If you. Yes. This is incredible. We immediately know what's going on here. And God, does he fall for it. God. Oh, like he is helpless in this scenario. What's amazing is I feel like the whole monument thing, it really, the brooding and the wanting to do the right thing, I think it really sets this scene up to be even more humorous because you really do in those, the, in those couple paragraphs really get a sense of who this guy is. He's a good guy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, man, Kim has him marked. Yeah. Okay. Like, like headshot. Yeah. Call it from across <laughs> oh, yeah. the room. It's, <laughs> from oh, yeah. across oh, the room. Right. We got him. Who are these? How did they know? She didn't have to lay it on so thick. She didn't have to go so hard on my boy. You think she... they were like following? How did they set this up? You think they followed him or was like, oh, oh, he's going to the park. He's going to the park. Let's go. To the oh, park. you know, yeah. she got a whole dossier on this guy and I'm sure she psychoanalyzed him like yeah. to death. Right. And then I'm sure that she, she was likely in charge of this hit, right? Like yeah. she probably set the whole thing up and they're like, okay, someone probably tailed him to the bar. And then, you know, they were probably on standby somewhere in a car, right? In case oh. it went down. I'm, I'm because they probably knew that they needed it to be kind of improvisational, right? What a, And he walked right into it. What a perfect opportunity, man. He's leaving the bar alone. He's walking exactly. the park alone. They were like, let's go. We, yeah. like, <laughs> we got him. Perfect. <laughs> the eagle has landed. Right. And they are they are a go. They're like, now, this guy's going to come out. He's probably going to rough you up a little bit. Might kick you in the butt. Uh, once he does, <laughs> skedaddle. <laughs> I don't think that's exactly how the brief went. But I also don't think it's entirely not how it went. And then as soon <laughs> as it's over, Kim is full throttle. She was like, oh, well, you, they, my hair got a little messed up and it's in front of my face right now. Would you mind brushing it back out of the way for yes. me? Morgan's <laughs> like, me? <laughs> aren't, here, take my jacket. Uh -huh. Well, aren't My you fair cold? lady, I'm just your friendly neighborhood himbo. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you struck me in the himbo nerve. <laughs> the jacket, exactly. He puts the jacket on her. She looks up, notices he's just wearing a sleeveless t-shirt. And she says, no, you'll oh, be no. cold. And okay. Oh, no. Is, he pulls his shirt down so she could see the thatch of thick red hair covering his chest. It's like wearing a sweater. 
like patting. He starts patting the shag carpet. He shows her his chest hair. This is hilarious. <laughs> this by is the way. He's like, insane no, I'm good. Right look here. at this. And it's just this. It's like the Austin Powers. Like looking <laughs> bright crop of red <laughs> chest hair. And this <laughs> is a move that he's pulling right now. Yeah. This he's was like, an idea of a out. good huh? move. The question is, does he know he's pulling a move or is he just being honest? Yeah. You decide. You be the judge. I did. I judged it very quickly. <laughs> And was like, <laughs> I was leaving it for the listener. Oh, but, I know. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> he pulls the chest hair out. Aren't you, aren't you going to be cold? No, check out these dope chest hairs I got. <laughs> Boom. I got these crispy red boys on my chest. And she's like, oh. And it's just well. like, man, if she wasn't a spy. I don't think this whole move set would have worked for Morgan. So I've gotten away with worse. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I am bashing Morgan purely because I would have fallen for this. You put 20 year old me in this scenario. I would have been more helpless. So he gets her with the chest hair. She's intrigued. Of course, the chase. Check this move out. He does the thing. He helps her to her feet, but her ankle gives out and she falls yeah. into her into his oh. arms. Oh, <laughs> sorry. It looks like I, I'm too sore to walk. I heard what my will ankle I do? two weeks ago. Yeah, while fencing. Yeah. She says that. She yeah. says I injured it while fencing. So Morgan picks her up. Of course, he's like, "All right, let me just carry it." She's like, "Hey, wait, hold on." I don't. I don't just let. Strange men who show me their chest hair carry me places, okay? Yeah, not within minutes of meeting me, yeah. at least. Morgan informs her, though. It's okay. He's with the heavy guards. I've got a stable <laughs> government job. That's what we do. I do. I always like the name of this unit. I like the Davian heavy guards. I always thought that was a cool name. It doesn't leave much up to the imagination as to what their job is. They're heavy. Uh, They're heavy. And their They're guards. guards. Yeah. <laughs> I like that simplicity. If only uh, oatmeal raisin cookies were often more truthful in their oh, endeavors, like the heavy guard. He's right. How are oatmeal <laughs> raisin cookies lying to you? Well, they look like chocolate chips. Exactly. Thank you, Kanan. Yeah, Thank you, my dear They friend. do. I'm just saying they've got me before where I've picked one up being like, oh, heck yeah, chocolate chips. And I'm like, oh, no. I've been hurt. I do like raisins. I'm not a raisin hater. I'm not a raisin hater. Exactly. It's just that it's not what you're you're expecting one thing, you get another thing. Exactly. And uh yeah. It's tough. <laughs> he picks her up and he's like, Oh yes, sir. allow me to introduce myself. I'm Morgan. And he's looking at her like, Does she recognize me? But uh she gives no indication that she recognizes him. Oh, Morgan? No, I don't. I never heard oh, of you. Incredible. Huh? She's the best. Yeah. I haven't ever watched the news. Flawless yeah. execution. You know, she was too busy fencing while uh, he yeah. was getting his TV spot. This is where like his literal dossier like accidentally falls out of her bag. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's not... I don't I don't know any personal friends of the prince. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's not Grayson, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Grayson wouldn't would would Grayson if Grayson would flash chest hair. He would have probably been like, "Well, little lady, yep. you know, it gets pretty crazy around here." Now you go on and you get better, You go on and get. 
and I'm going to keep looking. Yeah. <laughs> Grayson would have sent her off, you know, with a little yeah. smack on the bottom, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. like she wouldn't have even caught the vibes. <laughs> no. He'd have been no. like, happy to help you out, little princess. Now get, yeah. you better get on. It's late. She's like, but my ankle hurts. And he's like, oh, you'll get better. He's like, well, <laughs> I know there's a doctor up the road. <laughs> I can, I can, it's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Shout out to Trent Sparks. Shout out to Trent Sparks. <laughs> Voice of Battletech. So she introduces herself. I'm Kim Sorensen. Very grateful for your help. And if you hadn't, I think this is the first time we see the word Kim Sorensen, if you're reading the text. And that's just, what a good drop right there. You'd be like, yes, she got him. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things that it is not a surprise. It's like Stackpole does not intend no. it to be a surprise. No. The whole the no. whole chapter, he's like wandering around. He's like, well, I've wandered halfway to the NAIS building. Oh, I'm nearby the NAIS building. And the drop is literally just to make sure he, he it's literally a go th- for him to go. Yes, that is yes. who it is. Yeah. Yep. This yeah. this wasn't some weird freak encounter. This is intended. But I'm I'm still she didn't have to go so hard. My sister in Christ here, she caught the man with bait and a net. And yeah. I like she didn't have to use all of it. Okay. And 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 the bear trap. And, and like the bear the trap. Box, the yeah. box with the stick under it with the string. The, Hit the him with sling the gun. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, Morgan's <laughs> holding her. He asked her, Where, you know, where should I take you? Where are we going? And uh, of course. You know, oh, I have an apartment on campus. It's just right over there. Oh, well, actually, she says, you know, I can probably walk. I can probably limp along. That should be okay. Morgan shook his head firmly. None of that. We heavy guards are known as the strength of the Davians. And this is my chance to prove it. <laughs> oh, boy. He's in <laughs> Holding her tightly, he thought about ruminations of only a few minutes before. With that, all my duties were so sweet. Hook, line, and sinker. End of chapter. I also like from like a, uh, a an espionage tactics part. Kim does it. They do whoever's in charge of this op does a great job because this allows Kim to just walk in to this other role while it gives her a clean break from her original alias. Right, as in like she's not changing aliases. She's just yeah. she she's she's literally like this is just a continuation of the story good point she she doesn't change characters it's there's continuity organic there, which yeah. this yeah. is actually something that left me with a huge question about this is morgan through this whole chapter kind of expresses that he's not necessarily in the inner circle of things but he's in the important circle of things and kim Sorensen was just and in probably a lot of cases hanging out with justin on solaris yeah. Which was a huge important deal to the Davion household here. So I was thinking that it's a little wild to place her into this role with somebody that may have seen her hanging out on Solaris not too long ago with Justin. Also, she's the heir or the heiress, or at least a member of the Sorensen Mechanicals family, which I believe was set as a, a you know, a important family in the Capellan March. They make those cars. They make the typhoon and the hurricane. But they're from his region of space is yeah. what I'm saying. They're from his neck of the woods. A prominent yes. family. It is 
Yeah, she's just kind of she's playing herself. To me, it just it seemed a little high profile, and there's a lot of risk in here for this to be a Quintus Allard plan. Well, if you recall, it wasn't. It was a Hans Davian plan. That's true. But Quintus signed off on it. That's true. Also. Oh, yeah. Hans did specifically ask for her. He name dropped her. Why yeah. She he was d- like. He's, he wanted the same girl. He did say that. He's like, I want that same girl. She crushed it. We need her. And to me, that part's not the crazy part. It is the fact that she's keeping the Kim Sorensen persona here. Yeah. She is still Kim Sorensen. She should have adopted an alias, maybe. I'm going to be honest with you. I think the Kim Sorensen, it's for the readers. Okay. Yeah, 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 and and but you're but you're right. It probably should be an alias from a intelligence angle. But I also think Stackpole's writing the way Stackpole is. It's very tight and plot centric. So I don't really think it would have played for him to be like, "Oh, I'm alias," uh, and then be like, "But I'm actually Kim Source." I you know that I don't think that would have played and. But it just was a thought I had while I was reading it that that's a little wild. I think it was for the reader, right? He could have explained it. We could have done a whole, well, I'm not actually this person. I'm Kim and yada, yada, yada. But uh, there is a need for some fidelity in storytelling. And I don't think this side story is that important. It's important to the overall plot, but it's not important enough to kind of cross those T's and dot those I's, if you will. Uh, yeah, to me, it, it was just like I would have thrown it out as a simple line of as Kim Sorensen introduces herself to Morgan, she states, my name is a different name. And <laughs> totally. But like I said, it's not it's not a glaring thing. Just something I thought about as I finished up this chapter. Totally. It's completely forgivable in my eyes. Now, she was attending the NAIS as Kim Sorensen, probably. She was attending under her name. So she probably had to retain. Yeah. She did probably have to retain because they're going back to her apartment. She probably has like classmates and stuff. Oh, oh, that's a good point. Maybe it is actually a consequence, as in like it's like, oh, Hans didn't think about this. And it's a consequence of the fact that they are she's being pulled off that project and onto this. Yeah. So it's actually a top-down overlook. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that kind of stuff happens all the time, and it's usually up to the people on the ground to like find a, a workaround. But yeah, Hans wanted to put a spy on him, and uh, he did. That dirty dog, though, right? The whole time I'm reading, I'm like, ah, Hans, he got him. Hans! He did it. The fox. Once again, <laughs> he did it again, folks. But yeah, that's, you know, short little chapter. We get Kim, obviously, um, ensnaring Morgan. But also, I think the thematically a big part is, you know, his this, like, conflict. He's being drawn closer to the Davians, but he's the son of Michael Hasek Davian. And, you know, it's all just a... Keep that in mind. Don't forget, this man is still conflicted about being torn between these two houses. He's Michael's son, but he's also a Davian. You know, what's it all mean? And with that, we'll leave one man who's deciding between duty and family and meet another one in the next chapter. Chapter 8, 
So this chapter is all about that meeting with Yorinaga. Well, it starts, we're in Yorinaga's office, right? This is a Yorinaga's <laughs> office scene. We're on Nashira. This is the Ginyosha base, right? 23rd of October, 3027. So Narimasa Asano and Tarakito Nero are here in Yorinaga's office, okay? And they're here to give their reports. It's uh, it's an officer's meeting. This is cool. I imagine most of these go one way on account of Yorinaga has not talked, at least that we've heard of up until now. Oh, good point. Yeah, I don't think so. No, no lines of dialogue in either book yet. I can't this. I didn't think it would go this far. I, 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 <laughs> the first time I read these, I didn't notice that it. this this is so funny. I can't believe it. He's gone a whole book since his introduction. So Narimasa tells Yorinaga that the Ganyosha is back up to full strength, which is four companies, four companies of mechs, 48 mech warriors, but they're uh, full strength minus one staff officer. Okay. There is still one officer opening because the Rasselhog company doesn't have a CEO right now. We'll get to that. This part about the Azami company is interesting. They're talking about how one of the mech companies is called the Azami company, right? All of their mech warriors have, it says that they all have Islamic beliefs and they're really good. They're the best. Yeah. The Azami company, those guys are cool. And the other companies are pushing themselves to try to catch up. But the Azami company is currently the best and Saladin Bay he says, he's like, and your boy Saladin, he's the CEO. I think he's like, you know, Saladin Bay says you should come sit at his lunch table sometimes. Saladin Bay wants to hang out. <laughs> he's doing really good. And he says, you guys never hang out anymore. We also learned that one of the mech companies is the Russell Haig company. Only all the members are of Russell Hagian origin. That's cool. Unfortunately, they're not very good. They're the worst ones. They're <laughs> lagging behind because remember, they lack leadership. They don't have a commanding officer. So they're real sad. They're having a hard time <laughs> right now. Poor Russell Haig. Which this is our second time when covering all of these books that we've had Russell Haig come up, right? Right. So we, well, we talked a little bit about them on Verthandi, I think, mm -hmm. where I was like, you know, these. These Vithandians, they kind of fall into the crowd of people that, even though they're not a nation state, they are like a kind of like a group of people that are in between the Lyran and Caritan border that kind of fall into this like cultural identity of Russell Hagian. But I don't remember how deep we really went, only to say that uh, we we mostly talked about them in commentary to Trent's interpretation of them, which is oh, he yeah. gave them a hilarious, like, kind of country accent. A slight country accent that then we oh, yeah. <laughs> ran with. <laughs> we did run with it, yes, indeed. Tolan. But yes, these people are considered, these, the Russell Hagians have been kind of, like, rebelling against these the two nations that surround them forever but again they're not a nation themselves they're more of a cultural group that settled here which i only wanted to highlight the fact that we brought it up here because of that relationship and the fact that there is an entire Russell Hagian unit within the Ginyosha 
just repeats what we've seen from Yorinaga before, where it's not about following the traditional Curitan standards in a lot of things. It's building the best units. Yeah. Yes. But but also it's interesting because the Ganyosha is very multicultural. The yeah. Russell Hagians are very Scandinavian. Some as far as going to be like like neo-Norse culture. And then you have the Azami, which are kind of this Islamic culture. And then you have kind of the traditional Cretan, which is this kind of neo-Samurai, neo-feudal Japan culture. It's interesting that they're all here under one roof. The Ginyosha is diverse. You're right. It clearly has represents like all the kind of different cultural aspects of the combine, which is cool. But we're still short one officer, fortunately. And now we're getting somewhere when Narimasa and Tarkito tell us that they have interviewed promising potential officer. Okay, we have a candidate. All right. No formal training. Okay. Whatsoever. Didn't go to school. ISF doesn't like him. All right. They hate the guy. So that's good. That's you know, a positive that's, for the That's Ginyosha, a positive. Yeah. Right? They're true. like, that's They're like, that's not really it, a negative for us. Yeah. ISF yeah. hates him. You see Yorinaga like do an eyebrow raise at that. Like a, yeah. Oh, the. An, an affirmative man. hand wave. <laughs> Get dot gif. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy, right? ISF doesn't like him. Dude had a job on Al Shane driving mechs off an assembly line, right? Moved up to test pilot by the end there. He's a natural. He's great. And he's waiting outside. <laughs> You're like, oh, cool. I guess uh, this guy's here. If you didn't know going in, this is like, oh, this is like a job interview scene. You know, what's up? Yeah. The, well, I mean, this is just like, it's sort of like. Or so it seems. Remember in the first book where the ISF officer had captured that guy. Which is Tarakita, right? Oh, right. Yes. Correct. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. Had captured Tarakito. And Tarakito had gone through all that stuff. Remember, he had that crazy journey and he had like smug, he had joined up with these smugglers and like ran from his unit. Similar thing, except now that ISF guy isn't here, we took care of him. Remember the Kendo incident? <laughs> yes. I love this. This is how it should have been the first time. But there's a guy here. So, dude comes in, all right, cloaked in a green silk robe, cavernous hood. He's got the sweet robe on, all right. Dude comes in, bows to Yorinaga, takes a knee, all right, between the other two, pops the hood off, and we see that he looks Russell Hagian, right? He says he, he kind of Scandinavian features. We're like, oh, yeah, he's here to be an officer for the Russell Hag company. So the man introduces himself. He says, Nichiwa, Taisa Kurita Yorinaga-sama, it has been a long time, father. Oh, oh. <laughs> so this is Yorinaga's uh, son, I guess. That's what, that's I what guess he says. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, to my knowledge, has I don't think that's been mentioned at all. No. That he has a son. I didn't think so. Which immediately changes the dynamic that you held as a reader of Yorinaga, yeah. where he's been isolated and you saw him as a very lone standing character through all of this. And then to find out he had a son is just a huge shift in 
the Yorinaga character development tree here. And it's this guy. He introduces himself. He calls Yorinaga father. And then Yorinaga looks sharply at his two junior officers and he says, leave us. This is the first thing. This is the first line. How do you guys read the, he, when he says leave us, how do you, like, what emotion do you imbue the leave us? I felt it was like a calm, controlled, in the text, it's leave us, period. It wasn't like an exclamation mark, which I felt like Stackpole would have used if it was like an explosion of a leave us. But I think the subtlety of it to me is what sells it even harder because it's our first line of dialogue and we can then parallel it back to the Morgan scene and the outbursts that happen. This is a Yorinaga outburst. Now, the first time we've heard him speak, but that's not the first time these guys have heard him speak. Probably these are his, because he does plan things and whatnot, right? I'm sure. Do you think that these guys have off screen? Have they probably had strategy meetings and stuff? Do you think? It is possible, but he could have done it all like through notes, right? He could have like all done it through maybe writing. Because when we had the Kendo accident, it was delivered in a note. So, so far, all of our scenes with Yorinaga, I would say, sell the point that he hasn't said anything. (laughs) That's so cool. But to me, (laughs) I felt like if you keep it in the head canon that he hasn't said anything in his time, in isolation and forming the Ginyosha, this scene says a lot then. And I think that's what Stackpole's going for here. I, I agree with you. I think it's mm-hmm. a very calm, but it's a very calm expression. But the fact that it's an expression of speech at all means that there probably is some well of emotion that's kind of like boiling yeah. up. It's just that Yorinaga has such control over it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I also love that Stackpole has this as the point to where we break Yorinaga's silence. Because I know when I had started this chapter, every time it's a Yorinaga chapter, I keep thinking about like, he hasn't spoken. I keep reading for it. But this one in particular, I was like, as you both mentioned earlier, like, how long is he going to keep this up? Like, when is going to be the point that he speaks? And as soon as we get that line, I was like, this was well built up. I love this. It's also very surprising. I didn't expect it the first time I read it. Yeah. I was like, what? Yorinaga has a son? I mean, it's completely possible that he has a son, right? Because we really don't know that much about him, but it's just, he's very much a monk. And so the idea that he has a son, it kind of like, it goes up against that idea a little bit. So it's a little shocking, at least for me. It was unexpected. Yeah. So Yorinaga tells his guys to leave, but- his son asks them not to leave. He says that he wants them to be present just as they would during any other job interview because he says that he calls in an interview. He's here for the job. Yeah. And so they stay. He also specifically reassures Yorinaga. He says, I will not embarrass you, Sosin. Yes. As to say, like, you know, this isn't the, I imagine part of the reason Yorinaga concern is that he's here to make some kind of scene. Now, he does say his name here, though, when he introduces himself or when he requests that they remain present, he names himself as Akira Brahi. And then, yeah, after he says, I will not embarrass you, Yorinaga speaks again. Yorinaga nods solemnly. We'll take you at your word, Chui Brahe. And Brent, to your point, I took this more of 
Yorinaga wasn't worried about Akira embarrassing him, but Yorinaga himself embarrassing him was the break of emotion and the the feelings that have all of a sudden boiled up for him seem like that's where it's coming from. But then Akira immediately says, I'm not interviewing as your son. I'm interviewing as Chewy Akira Brahe. Yeah. The reality is it was probably both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's probably, I mean, how could this scene, what we learn soon, how this could only be somewhat emotionally filled. Oh, absolutely. Brahe. So now we get a bit where Akira gives us his backstory. Well, the first thing he tells Yorinaga that he's from the 11th Legion of Vega and Yorinaga kind of recoils because you know, that's not good. That's like a disgraced unit. The disgraced unit. That's where, as Yorinaga says, all of the people, the ISF, want yeah. to watch all yeah. get sent. All of the troublemakers or... Failed sons. Failed sons and political troublemakers. Yeah. He was born in 3001. And obviously he was Yorinaga Karita's son. So he got into a nice school. He was in the Sun Jang Academy. But in 3016... When Yorinaga was disgraced, he was disgraced as well after Mallory's world, right? He got expelled from the academy. He was also dishonored. Yeah, he didn't finish military academy. He got kicked out. And so he had to go work in a, a mech factory for a long time. I think he had to work on like a manufacturing line and he had to work his way up to to where he was eventually, um, they let him do the test pilot. They let him like drive the mechs and whatnot. There's a fun little story in Shrapnel 14, actually, that we get to see kind of like a, uh, from the perspective of someone kind of working in a mech oh, factory. Yeah. yeah. As not so much a mech warrior, but as a, a pilot. Doing this, test pilot. Exactly. It's a good point. It's, it's a cool story. I thought it was fun anyway. And it's about a Marauder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's the first story in Shrapnel fourteen. Is basically yeah. about. It's not quite this, but it's basically what he's. That's funny. Good point. Yeah, that yeah. is a cool story. It's cool. Check it out. Uh, yeah, Millennium Marauder, written by uh, Jeremy A. Reynolds. Yeah, that's a good story. Yeah, he was a test pilot, and then one day he tells this crazy story about how one day the yakuza attacked. They were trying to steal some mechs. They got raided. They got raided by the Yakuza. But Akira, uh, he took a Grand Dragon out and he smoked him. Smoked him. <laughs> Easy. That's that dragon with the PPC. Yeah. <laughs> Sans AC5. Yeah, he tore him up. And so, uh, yeah, he earned a spot. They let him back in. He earned a spot in the Legion of Vega. He does mention that this is Theodore Carita's unit. This, that's the coordinator's son. Yeah, Theodore is running the Legion of Vega. And that's where they sent Akira because he was a disgrace. So he went to the, you know, he went to the bad boy, the bad squad. Theodore Kurita, interesting character. I'm excited to talk about him when he's a little bit more relevant later. Oh, yeah, he's the best. He is. It's true. Akira, they did well in the... Legion of Vega, actually, because this was the Theodore era. So uh, he apparently conducted himself with distinction. They had to be scrappy, right? 
that's the story. Even once he got to the Legion of Vega, they didn't have any, they didn't let him have any of the good stuff. So they had to be super scrappy if they wanted to get anywhere. It turns out if you're in the unit where they throw all the weirdos and the dropouts and the, uh, the misfits, it turns out that, uh, they don't care that much about you logistically. <laughs> oh, he says, uh, the unit was riddled with ISF informers. Theodore at first took me for one, but it even says, you know, he never trusted me fully, but he respected me for my skill. That's why he's the best. <laughs> Everyone is a potential ISF informer, right? <laughs> and, uh, his story, it's a little humble bragging here, right? He's kind of hitting them with the, listen, my story, it's a little wild and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a lot for anyone to buy. He says also he was in a lance of other Rasselhagians. Soon by salvage, trading, and outright theft, our Lance's mechs were fully operational. They had to be scrappy, but they got what they needed. Oh, there's also this bit about one time he had to disobey an order. He, he like disobeyed a suicidal order because the order didn't make any sense. But fortunately, the, uh, well, he says, well, you know, also the commanding officer died. And I was elected to replace him. So you see, he, yeah, he had this whole little career in the Legion of Vega. It's not spectacular, but... He does seem intelligent and resourceful, right? Because remember, this is a job interview, by the way. This is his resume. <laughs> Which is a wild way to meet your estranged father. Yeah, yeah. It's just this oral presentation. This is his resume. He's scrappy. He's scrappy. Really, he truly did come from the bottom. And now he's back here. This is where Yorinaga asks him what he would do if he was given an order that conflicted with what he felt was best for the Draconis Combine. Don't you hate when you get this question on your job application? <laughs> yeah. What's your greatest weakness? Yeah. What if your manager told you to do something that was not best for the, the dragon? <laughs> Man, what do they want me to... <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking about Battletech job applications, right? There would be <laughs> questions like that. You know? It's like... <laughs> Do you get nausea while wearing a neuro helmet? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's fun to think about. Okay. Akira <laughs> tells him that, though, he would obey the order, but... I would obey instantly, though. I would also stand ready to obey another order if my commander chose to reconsider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's... A, yeah. He's, uh, yes, I would obey it, but I would, you know, be open to suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope my commander changed his mind. Yeah, it's some real, like, I'd do it, but uh, I won't like it. Yeah. It also feels like a little bit of a fib. Who amongst us hasn't, hasn't uh, embellished? Oh, yeah. It's not like I've never answered the what's your greatest weakness question with, oh, I think I'm too overprepared. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's that I don't want to work that hard. Yorinaga asks Akira what he would do if he was ordered to commit seppuku, to which... Akira pulls his shirt off and says that he would only ask that his father stand as his second. He pulls his shirt off and he's like, I'd do it. I'd do it right now. Come on, give it to me. <laughs> this sells it, by the way. This seals the deal. This was great. Yorinaga sees this and he tells Narimasa and Tarakidu to prepare a place in the officer's quarters. He's like, that's uh, yeah, he said, that's great. When he says that, he says, please prepare a place for Chusa, Akira Brahe. Oh, Chusa, yeah. So he's giving him the job. He got the job. And also, before he says that, it mentions Yorinaga smiled while he said it. He's proud. It's interesting. He would be a completely different person had Yorinaga not been disgraced. <laughs> right? He went on yeah. his own little journey. 
It's interesting. And now he's back. So after the two officers leave, Yorinaga asks Akira how he came to bear his mother's name. His name is Brahi. That's his mother's maiden name. So Akira tells a story about how basically after Yorinaga was exiled, Akira's mother, Yorinaga's wife, was sold into slavery and eventually killed herself. So her father ended up taking him in and raising him, right? Do I got that right? Well, specifically, it states that she was given permission to commit seppuku. Yes. And by her owner, but it also mentions that she was valued at 20,000 sea bills. 20,000? And so Yorinaga's immediately kind of caught back of like, who would give an order to allow somebody so valuable to die. And that's when Akira drops the bombshell on him. Oh yeah. Yes. Her. So her father allowed her to kill herself. Yeah. (laughs) He says it takes an extraordinary man to allow so valuable a slave such release. Her master must've been very special. Yeah. And that's where Akira follows it up with. He is. And after he watched his daughter die, he adopted me and saved me from following her into death, which is where it's revealed that it was her father that right, right, right. had taken her in Purchased and then her. did that so he could then adopt Akira. Okay. Interesting. Very sad. Which which is right, that's uh it's heart wrenching, really. Yeah. You're like and and then her father allowed her. And the way when I was reading it, I took it is that Yorinaga seemed like he didn't know about it, about this whole thing. Well, that's what so it's pretty clear to me, I think, that uh, from what we've already seen, that Yorinaga went from Mallory's world to the monastery, right? It's pretty clear he hasn't had any real interaction mm-hmm. since then, is what it was what it feels like. And literally, he went into exile in that monastery and then literally has just been asking the coordinator to commit seppuku. Uh, what was it annually until the coordinator was like, I have need of you again. And now we're here. Yeah. Yeah. So he really, in this moment learns the depths of the repercussions of the battle at Mallory's world. It's a lot to take in all at once. Yeah. Which, I mean, a lot of information is thrown at us this chapter. Yeah. It's dense. We can, we can assume then that Yorinaga's wife was of Russell Hagian descent a, he had a family in the first place. <laughs> That's another big thing that got dropped on us. So all of this happening at once for Yorinaga as well is a lot for him to have to process. Yeah, it'd be a lot for anyone. But we know Yorinaga has an immense amount of self-control. But we do see, we do see Stackpole does give us hints that Yorinaga swallowed hard. That's really the... Mo- this has been a man who has been, I imagine, of tranquil stillness in every other scene prior to this. Yeah. The Yorinaga swallows hard might as well be in uh-huh. bold. This was interesting. The This is the most we've learned about Yorinaga by far, personally. Oh, yes. Yes. So far. So, we, yeah. This was the Akira Brahi chapter, but this is also the Yorinaga Karita chapter. And now the Rosalhog Company has a commanding officer. And it's Yorinaga's son. And... To me, I think this chapter stands out so much because it set me 
on a different path, which I think Stackpole is intending of what I think's developing with Yorinaka. Because he's been kept in so much mystery until then. All we knew was his motivation to destroy the Kelhounds and work inside the Ginyosha. So yeah. seeing this humanizes Yorinaka so much that he seems less alien, less reserved. There's there's an emotional side to Yorinaka that we had not seen yet. And to me, it immediately made me think, oh, is that a chance for him to not just live on the motivation of destroying the Kelhounds? That is what it seems. We'll see. I think he still wants to just destroy the Kelhounds, though. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, or to meet again on the field of battle. You know, we'll see. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a requirement for some reconcile there for certain. Oh, absolutely. We've seen that now all the way through both Yorinaga and Morgan Kell. Unfinished business. Unfinished business. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, congratulations to Chusan now. You got the job. He did it. <laughs> We did it. So, you know, really, this chapter was about a staffing problem, getting solved. Yes. <laughs> really. That's just, sir, we have a personnel issue, and then boom, here we go. We got the guy. What are the chances? We're done, you know? We're done, folks. Moving on. Yeah, yeah. Definitely nothing else to gleam here. No. <laughs> just a staffing issue. He's hired. He's hired. We got the guy. What do you think when the guy's here? Oh, we're getting a new CO. Dude, we got a new guy. They hired a CO. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, who is it? It's, it, dude, you're not going to believe it. It's like Yorinaga's disgraced son. He has this whole <laughs> tragic backstory and everything. It's like, no way. And he's Russell Hagen. You know, how cool is that? The question is, will this be perceived in a boost to morale or will it further, further decrease it for the <laughs> Russell Hagen? Oh, they're going to love him. He's down with the Hague. <laughs> but with that... We'll leave this interview and transition into a going away party in the next chapter. Chapter 9. We open with Andrew Redburn on Kittery, and he's hanging out with the boys. At a Chinese restaurant. This part rules. <laughs> I love this. It's not just any Chinese restaurant. It's Justin's favorite. It is Justin's favorite. Remember that? They mentioned that at the trial. He's always eating at those, at those Chinese restaurants. And yeah, Andy is here. They're checking it out. They have just finished dinner. And according to Andy, it was excellent. He loved okay. it. He's like, I see why Justin was hanging out here all the time. Yeah. It wasn't it. for spycraft. This is nice. And this really makes me, I want some general sodas. It now. sounds so good. It does yeah. sound so good. Yeah. <laughs> you can see it. He like, it opens with him dropping the chopsticks. Like, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> Andy raises a toast to Walter DeMesno, who is leaving the unit soon, unfortunately. Walter's got to go. He's resigning his post or retiring from the, I don't know. I don't, is he necessarily retiring? I'm not sure. Listen, Walter is leaving. And this is interesting though. This is a weird place, right? Because the Kelhounds are kind of this extension in some ways, except for legally. And, but 
they are kind of an extension of the Lyrans. It's like he's getting transferred. There's like a transfer process. They 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 can go cross platform. <laughs> There's some kind of middleman, right? There's some kind of middle layer that facilitates some kind of transfer. Right. So but but you're technically right. Yes, technically he is retiring from active duty service with the Federated Sons. Right. It's it's basically retiring sort of. Sort of. But he's still I think <laughs> I think you still get time on your on your file though for being in a Merc unit just like Jones, right? Yeah. From the from the first book. He was he was with the Hounds, but he was still with the He was LCAF, assigned to them. Yeah. Though. Interesting. How does it work? We keep running into this. Every time <laughs> you notice this is not the first time we're like, how does it is Battletech is funny like this with with the with the Merc units. Well, it does go to show you how, don't get me wrong, we will see instances of mercenaries kind of being entirely standalone, but there's also some that very much integrate when they are working a contract, they are very integrated into that military oftentimes, and I think this is an extension of that. And, you know, we don't know from the novels alone, we don't know the extent of the Kelhound's contract and all the idiosyncrasy you know who knows they might have all kinds of clauses and stuff that merits this you know we're not criticizing and saying it's unbelievable it's just uh we I, I think it really comes from a curiosity of like how exactly does this work just to be clear well and regardless of how it works the important part is that he's leaving at the notice from morgan kell yes also with him Stating, sorry, Captain, I gave my word. I promised Morgan Kell I'd ship out and rejoin the Kellhounds whenever he gave the word. And that was something we had talked about earlier about like he the messages Morgan. have gone out. Yeah. And the these messages. are Walter is one of the former Kellhounds that left the unit with Morgan. Yeah. So they didn't go straight into retirement. They didn't become farmers or things like that. They stayed as mech warriors. Well, some of them might have. We don't know all of them, but it does seem like this is probably the likely. They probably went into some kind of service elsewhere. However, we're also learning that, uh, oh, Morgan's bringing the Kellhounds back up to full strength. He's getting the band together again. Yeah, we're getting the band back together. Exactly. That's exactly what's going on here. Yeah, that this was always the plan for it. Got uh, Morgan. We've got a loincloth, half a pack of cigarettes. A jump ship. It's twenty nine jumps to. Uh, I I don't. I, I was. That's Brent. I need you to understand. <laughs> when you started saying that, I was I I was about to Good. say we're on a mission from God. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically that is what's going on here. Um. Yeah, he promised all those messages. They're coming back. All of these, they've been scattered to the winds, and now they're being drawn back together. The old Kellhounds. Also, Walter is not worried, though, because he's got Robert Crayon to take his place. You guys remember Crayon back. Lieutenant. It's Crayon. It's that <laughs> it's... kid from the beginning of the first the, book. The one that Andy beat up. <laughs> yeah, the one that Andy beat up. Got him in the breadbasket. It seems that beating did him some good. He made Lieutenant. Isn't that cute? Also, learning about Capet really changed his tune too oh remember yeah he was like a pet apologist literally <laughs> until <laughs> one of the only ones we met in the entire book yeah. at least he got in early right he figured it yeah, out he, early so yeah, he got to just... watch the whole solaris thing like transpire and be like i'm glad i'm not rooting for that guy anymore yeah <laughs> 
Remember, you gave him his walking papers. <laughs> well, this is him. He made Lieutenant. Yeah, I think this is cute. Crayon calls him Sarge, and Demesnel tells him, it's Walter now, Robert. We all knew a couple of you recruits would make Lieutenant and assume Command of Lances. We all hoped you'd be one of them. This scene rules. <laughs> I love the Stackpole hangout scenes. I love oh, these yeah. so much. I'm Me so too. chill with these. Yeah, every time I get to one, you can't have too many. Or you get, you know, but yeah, pepper in, pepper in some hangouts, and these are always some of my favorites. I want to bring this up because clearly he wrote these books all in one go. And by this book, you remember I was like, you know, I wish there was a little bit more fat on it. Well, already, clearly Stackpole's hit his stride here. I feel like this book has like a real good composition of both pacing and fat. It balances them both very well. I mean... This book does seem to be moving a little more slowly right off the jump, right? Not right. that much has happened so far compared to the first book. So much like that thing runs, right? That's true. Like you you come out the gate and it's like we're like we're popping, we're moving. This thing I feel like we're getting more pointed events happening than establishing events. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love it. He's on a roll. We're feeling it. We're in the zone. <laughs> the wonton zone. On Kittery. On Kittery. Man, <laughs> this place sounds so good. I can see it, right? Can't you see it? I can absolutely see it. Behind closed doors, we have, me and Kanan have talked. We've had this conversation. I don't know. We've had it multiple times, and we always come back to it, which is, which is, which of the great house states has the best food? And uh, we both, we both <laughs> are on. on record as saying the Capellans. It's uh, the Capellans. It's the Capellans. <laughs> they probably got the best food. I think so. I don't know why. It's you know what? I think it's because I read this book. <laughs> I, I really, I'm like, you know, back in the day, and I'm like, man, it sounded so good when they were in that restaurant. <laughs> so Andrew Montbard asks Andy about their next orders. By the way, where are we going next? The unit is getting transferred, right? The first Kittery, the experiment is over, it seems like. It looks like it was a success. They're being shipped out. The whole cadre. This is kind of interesting. We learned that the first Kittery training battalion, it's cool. They like kind of spun these guys up here and then battalion. It's going to literally go from being a training battalion into being a proper battalion so i think this is interesting the way that they progress it's uh they, they literally spun this from the ground up yeah they're getting like absorbed by a larger yeah. command basically as like one of their companies because i think they're about a company strong so I, I think at least they were back back when justin was there right yeah so yeah it's interesting and they don't, no one knows where they're headed next. They know that Andy knows. Andy's got their next orders and they're all here and they've just been eating dinner with them. Oh, I do like smartly. Archie St. Agnan expresses concern that maybe we shouldn't be talking in here. It's like technically classified. <laughs> they're in the Capellan neighborhood. They're, they're in the Chinese restaurant. Andy isn't worried about it though. He's like, no, it's fine. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. It's specifically the Yeezy Tong restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't this the Yeezy Tong joint? Nah, it's chill. <laughs> Justin trusted him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andy's not worried about it. I love when he says, 
look, they won't be on Kittery long enough for disciplinary action to come, right? It's okay. We're leaving soon. We won't even get the paperwork. Also, the word's already on the street. He says, my houseboy, Lee Chung, already presented me with a blanket his grandmother embroidered (laughs) containing the emblem for our new unit, which is so funny. So the guys don't know, but his houseboy, (laughs) Andy's houseboy's grandmother, already (laughs) knitted a blanket, embroidered a blanket. This is so funny. (laughs) Something, something OPSEC. Yeah, he says, I often think our orders are sent via House Leal before they come to us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we got to love our boy Andy, though. That's just like, literally the word is on the street. Everyone knows but them. (laughs) Right? They're like, these guys are literally the last to hear about it, which is so funny. So also, it turns out they had a betting pool going. They all threw in. They all took guesses as to what unit they would be uh, stationed with and they even bought a spot for andy so that he had a chance to win but also so that he's culpable basically it's what they tell him yeah if you're in the pool then yeah we didn't want you to feel left out and then andy's like well that just means i'm implicated now (laughs) so yeah they bought him in so they all ask him okay what unit are we with he tells them check it out we are being posted to the davian light guards and they're clearly shocked for a moment it's just blank stares the guys are like what davian light guards davian light guards and apparently that's weird because that is actually this prestigious premier house unit no one expected they're just a capellan march training cadre right now like a house unit they all they have to like reckon with what they just learn here. It then turns into they start going back and forth of like, why? What? Huh? They're trying to figure it out. Why do we Mondidier reminds everyone about the Silver Eagle? Remember, Andy on the Silver <laughs> Eagle? Huh? That's probably the prince wanted to hook him up. So he's given us like, you know, he's given us a primo assignment. You know what I mean? Um, however, Archie, Archie. Archie thinks that perhaps politics are afoot. Huh? <laughs> uh, I couldn't on. imagine that. Archie nervously twists his mustache. Think about it. First the thing with Morgan, Hasek Davian, with the best man. Now this, I'm just saying, politics are afoot. Politics are afoot. Fun fact about the uh, Davian Light Guards, uh, their nickname is the Swift Foxes. Swifties, they call them. <laughs> They don't, but that's funny. (laughs) This is the part where the waiter arrives with the bill and, oh, oh, waiter puts down the bill and Andy asks, you know, who won the bet? By the way, who won the bet? Turns out Andy did (laughs) because they intentionally entered him for a unit that none of them thought they could possibly get assigned to the Davian light guards, right? Is that what I'm reading? Yes. That's what it seems to imply, that they were like, oh, put them down for light guards because we're not going to get it. So yeah, Andy wins everything, 140 pounds. Amazing. Yeah, that's so funny. Now, waiter brings the bill, and we see there's like, there's a message on it, a chop, right? Like red wax and seal of Shang Dao the leader of the Yeezy Tong, okay, local crime lord. He's paid for the meal, okay, and then left a message, all right? 
Well, first, Andy asks, is anyone carrying a gun? And no one is. Well, except for Montdidier, though, dude, he's packing. He has two auto pistols, all right, two two spare magazines. He pulls out two <laughs> auto pistols. <laughs> Montdidier's, he's got the heat. Two auto pistols. And then he pulls, he's like, hold up, he's got the small laser pistol and a knife. <laughs> it's that classic scene, you know, it's like, that's like one of my favorite tropes, right? Where like the one guy's like, you know, turn in your weapons and it's like, and he, like <laughs> extended sequence of them, like removing weapons. It's a classic. Yeah. It's like a scene straight out of Desperado. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're sitting in the bar. It's just weapons start flying. We all know that one guy though, right? EDC. <laughs> <laughs> Stay strapped or get clapped. Andy tells the boys that Shang Dao left a note informing them that unfortunately there is a Maskarovka strike team out front right now waiting for them. Oh, so they need to go out through the rear. It's escalated pretty quickly here. Yeah. They want to know if we can trust this guy, but Andy tells them that Justin did. That's good enough for him. I mean, you got a 50, 50 shot either way. <laughs> I imagine there's only a back and a front. You know, it's funny though. So, yeah, they start making their way through the restaurant, and their first encounter is somebody shoots through the kitchen door, right? So actually, there is a guy in the back, right? That's what it seems. Gunfire through the kitchen door, and uh, immediately, it's cool. We get this sweet restaurant gunfight in the Chinese restaurant, though. Yeah. This scene rules. They're trying to get out, and they get in this whole gunfight. Customers are screaming, right? Everyone is screaming, bullets there's china exploding you know i feel like there's like fine china on the walls it's getting <laughs> you can see it it's so cool tables they're, like ducking, they're ducking under tables and like yep. shooting it's uh yeah it's sick and also montdidier is a shooter though well he better be when he's uh packing those uh chrome plated magnums yeah he does work he shoots a bunch of the guys he's clearly the best marksman it's sick. He's a shooter. So Montdidier shoots some guys. They duck into the kitchen. I like this, though. So they're all huddled in the kitchen for a little bit. And then it says that one of the Maskarovka agents, like, burst in through the kitchen door, but then slips on some grease. Oh, man. Is that embarrassing? It says that. <laughs> we get a little, he comes running in, and he's about to shoot him, but he slips on some grease and but Mandidi shoots him anyway as well. Like while he's like <laughs> mid fall, he like tsh, tsh, he gets him, and then he takes the like the whole time they're taking weapons from everyone that he shoots. So like by the time they get out into the alley, they're, they're slowly armed, armed right? yeah. Because <laughs> at one point, two of them grab kitchen knives, right? It's like, oh, we got some knives. Yeah, <laughs> taking one of the Calhoun's literal playbook. <laughs> so they're in the alley. They see one of the agents is running away. The boys give chase. They're like, get him. It's funny, though. Andy is running, and he's regretting it. He's like, why do we have to wait till after dinner? You know, I just <laughs> finished. I'm so full. This sucks. Couldn't we have had the gunfight after I've digested my dinner? I get this, yeah. man. I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, come on. If we, you know, if we're going to do this, like, why now? <laughs> we were having a good time. It's like, we're not even in mechs. This is the worst. We know Andy loves fighting not in mechs. Remember? Tiger team. <laughs> he loves it. We, the reader, have 
<laughs> almost only seen him fight outside of mech so far, which is very funny. We had a cameo of him in the hunchback fighting alongside the Calhouns, repelling the uh, Sword of Light on Pacifica. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was in the hunchback. That's right. So, okay. Anyway, they're chasing the guy. And it's funny because the dude dips into a building, like this warehouse. This is where he says, could the rat have been so foolish as to duck into his own hole? Which is exactly what happens. He comes out with an assault (laughs) rifle. Yeah. They do lay a little bit of a trap, though. Andy goes to run up to it, and like a dude pops up on the roof. It's actually the same dude. We find out he scrambled up to the roof to get a better shot. But they do lay a little trap because as soon as he pops up, the Besnel cuts him down. And so they get access to this. It's like the safe house. That's the end of the chapter is they like walk into this place and Andy's looking around and he's like, dang, uh, this is a safe. We, we just found a Maskarovka safe house. That's probably pretty useful. Yeah. Heaven alone knows what little goodies are stored in here. <laughs> Let's go find <laughs> out. <laughs> it's like he doesn't even call it in right away. You know, he's like, Let's check this out. This one's for me. I'm sure we'll get there's some cool stuff in here. Like night vision goggles, you know? That's what I mean. <laughs> like Are those are they heavy? Then they're expensive. Put them down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with the foam, with like the very satisfying tight foam. That's what I'm imagining. They're cracking open one of those cases and there's like expensive Capellan night vision goggles. And they're like, Yeah, dude. And they're like they're like, All right, let's call it in. That's what I would do. But yeah, this chapter rules. This is this is so cool. I just love the cut to Andy at the beginning, just like eating the like, oh, mm, mm. Like, I like, <laughs> you know, I'm starting to know why Justin always. It's one of those chapters Stackpole's having a good time with because it comes out of nowhere. We had an intense chapter last chapter, and then it's just like, oh, we catch up with Andy and the boys having lunch, and then. It's like, oh, as soon as you settled into everybody joking around, then it's like surprise gunfight. Surprise gunfight. It does. I was thinking about this. This feels a little like Stackpole was having a good time. He was like, yeah. he was like, this one's for me, this chapter. You also, know, this gunfight, it's so Hong Kong. It fits, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like a John Woo. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got detective tequila vibes here i mean we got homie with the dual magnums that he's packing it's it is it's very blood opera it's like a it's like a max pain level (laughs) it's sweet we got doves flying yeah i i think stack paul he had a vision he was like in a chinese (laughs) restaurant and they have they get into a gunfight and it goes out it rolls out into the street and it's kind of a chase scene and then the one of the men gives up the goats he's like i need a little bit more firepower and uh it gives away i like it stackpole i like i like it <laughs> that is bad though if you're being pursued you shouldn't lead them back to the back to the safe house <laughs> what do you expect yeah and that's it that's andy is this, this is the first time we've checked on andy in this book yes yeah it's borderline his introduction in this book right yeah like that is that is yeah. the andy introduction for book two Totally. It's like, what's Andy up to? Same old Andy. He's on Kittery. Back on Kittery. More responsibility. Yeah. Same Andy. Yeah. <laughs> it rules. It rules. He's the best. <laughs> yeah, it starts with him eating the Chinese food. It ends with him finding the Maskarovka safe house. 
it is interesting. Maskrovka, those are Capellan agents. Yeah, it's Justin's boys. Yeah, it's Justin's boys. I wonder who ordered this attack. Well, we'll have to find out who was behind it and who's going to pay the price for it in the next chapter. Chapter 10. This chapter starts where back on Sion, okay, we get Justin at his desk. Justin time. I love this. Yeah. We get another Justin scene. He's in the office. I love this late night, like coffee stain on the manila folder. Dossiers. of reports. Spread across the table. Yeah, like empty packs of cigarettes. You Yeah, the smoke haze in the room. Yeah, the the Chinese takeout containers like piled up. I love the overworked office. Uh, yeah, let's go. And Sen <laughs> 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 Shang walks in and he's up late. He's working all night. He slumps in a chair. He's so tired. I love this. And did we get to get this little dialogue between Justin's going on about Oh, well, you know, Sen, uh, he's talking about the staff. We have our best, but we're getting all this data. But he says something about it takes geniuses like me and you. We're actually the ones who actually were able to make the leaps of logic required to sift through the information and come to a conclusion about the data that we receive. And Sen's just like, I like the part about us being geniuses. The rest of it, I don't know. Whatever you say. Sure, man. He's like, you're the one working. (laughs) Yeah. Shing asks about Justin's Davian budget projects. Well, like, yeah, you know, Justin's always working them Davian budgets. I do like Shing asks Justin for some data about Monopole. Oh, right, the Silver Eagle Company. He wants to know about Monopole. And Justin asks him if he's still working on the Silver Eagle thing. And Shing tells him, no, a Silver Eagle, no, no, that was nothing. He's asking about shipping costs for hatchet men or something about how he thinks that they're moving some hatchet men off the books, basically some hatchet men mechs. And, um, we, uh, you know, the hatchet man is mentioned here, but we're going to save talking about it. Well, as it has more relevance later, they're just talking about paperwork. They're trying to find that little detail, the little needle in the haystack, the thing that's like, Oh, this is something useful. Yeah. Now, Shang does ask Justin about his pet project, and this is where Justin talks about he's got this whole thing going on where he's trying to find the secret battle mech facility, right? He knows that Davian has some kind of secret battle mech facility out there somewhere. They're producing secret battle mechs. He's heard rumors, right? They're making new mechs. You've heard, right? Because uh, we didn't make new mechs long time, long time. We all, we just used the same mechs. We just made new, ver- we just made until recently. Okay. Because Dr. Bonsai's design for the hatchet man is new. Dr. Bonsai. <laughs> Dr. Bonsai. Dr. Bonsai. Listen, Dr. Bonsai is a uh, insert for one of the uh, curators of Battletech. We'll talk about him later. He's definitely a... Uh, a character as a uh, the good doctor <laughs> has his name and uh you know naming me- convention for mechs would uh indicate wherever you go there you are 
Hatchet Man is new. It's a it's a bonsai joint, as is our Raven and Karita's Grand Dragon. There's some new mix. There's that Grand Dragon again. The Grand Dragon is less interesting than the Hatchet Man and the Raven are like very different, unique new things. Yeah. The Grand Dragon is basically just a dragon, right? Well, <laughs> I think so. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that it's got a PPC instead of an AC5, right? We've we talked about it in the the last book. And I'm sure that there's some upgrades throughout. I'm sure it's got like better wiring and yeah, it's mostly just better dragon <laughs> or improved dragon. The Raven though, a different story. Again, we will save discussing the Raven further for a later time when it's more relevant. We'll talk about it later. So Justin has heard rumors that they've been doing something with Myamers, all right? They've been doing something. Somebody somewhere has greatly increased the physical strength of Myamer fibers. Think about it. You could make super strong mechs and stuff. And he has some candidates as far as locations for the secret facility. Because if you think about it, the facility, all right, it wouldn't be too deep in the Capellan March, because you wouldn't want Michael to find it. Justin has his candidates, okay? He just needs more data, but he doesn't want to tip his hand. We can't just go sending out raiding parties. They'll know that we're looking for it, all right? We want to find it. We want to look for it without them knowing that we're looking for it. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Shang is like, okay, dude, whatever. That's great, Justin. Justin's like, they're t completely jokerified by this point, right? <laughs> He's just it's like, I know where the secret facility is, man. I got, I've been, it's like maps. He's got, I've got the these string. documents. He's got the string out. Yeah. Shang is going to bed. He's tired. Well, actually, he's going to bed, but he ain't sleeping mm. because turns out Romano been keeping him up at nights. You know, Justin, you just jealous? <laughs> Romano. Since Shang appears to be sharing beds with Romano Liao, which, uh, exactly. Well sounds said. a little bit like, Mm, playing with fire. <laughs> yeah, very dangerous. They have they have pod racing on Malastare. <laughs> very fast, very yeah. dangerous. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Alexi pops in and he's like, "Hey guys, we have a little of a little bit of a situation. The whole operation on Kittery, okay? The whole thing shut down. All right." And Justin and Shing are like, "What?" Shut down the whole thing. It turns like Alexi's just like, you know, that whole our whole operation on that planet and our ties to the in our whole safe house and all of our resources, it's all gone. Because a Maskrovka team tried to hit a group of Davian officers, but they all got smoked. They killed them all. Completely massacred. They found and found out. They did. Justin is alarmed when he hears that it's Kittery. He's immediately concerned for Andy's well-being. Oh, no, they didn't get Andy, did they? No, they didn't. He's happy to find out that they did not get Andy. <clears throat> but why? Uh, but this raises some questions, right? Why attack Kittery Training Battalion? Why? Uh, yeah, question mark? I mean, Andy, Andy is of some political relevance, but like, I feel like he's far beyond i feel like tapping these resources to kill andy is uh a little silly yeah it does seem like there would be 
much more valuable targets to hit. Yeah. And even though Andy does have the celebrity status, but it seems like a lot of heat for not a lot of reward. It turns out we're not alone, though. They did a terrible job on top of that. They <laughs> went on the attack and they ended up leading the enemy back to the base and getting their entire storehouse captured. It's like the worst possible job. They all got killed and lost. It's so unnecessary. <laughs> Who gave this order? What kind of moron? Well, <laughs> this is where Alexi informs us that, well, Lady Lady Romano issued the orders. And Shang's just like, what? I mean, sh she said she wouldn't. She said she wouldn't do it. I mean, she floated the idea of like doing kind of a wave of attacks against Davian officers. I told her not to do it. Uh, he, 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 he does admit, and he's like, come to think of it though, I did mention that killing officers in training battalions could have a negative effect on <laughs> morale. I did say that. I did say that, but you know, so I was just, just like snap to... around and hit him with like an excuse me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. So those guys were sent by Romano. They all got killed. Now we have like an international incident on our hands. Justin just sinks back into the chair. He's, you know, we got the whole, he's like rubbing his temples. Just like he needs an aspirin. He, you know, he's taking, put, dropping the aspirin in, in like the water. We got the hollow vids. It's like playing the, like, it's, they're piping in the news from Kittery's like silly little, yeah. their little local news. Like in other news today, uh, a capella, you know, authorities yeah. still haven't, you know, given the full details, but what's looking like a, uh, capellan intelligence, uh, den, uh, has been, uh, dis was, was discovered by uh, federal forces this evening in an attack that <laughs> left all of the Capellans dead. <laughs> yeah, Justin just he, he just sits down, like, you know, like <laughs> lights a cigarette, just like thousand yard stare, just like it's a disaster. You know the way to put it. He looks up. He he tells him, "Listen, here's what we're gonna do. Okay, I want two inventories. All right." All right. I want the real report and then I want like one that isn't so damaging, okay? And then we're that that's the one we're going to file. One for okay, us. What, one yeah, for Let's see what kind of spin. You know, let's see what kind of spin. He just starts talking about spin. He's like, "You know, we'll put a spin on it." You know, how do we spin it, guys? He's got nothing. He's like, <laughs> well, how, do we, "How do we spin it?" Actually, that's not true. Actually, hold on. I wanted to point this out. This is slick. Justin tells Shang that he should send out like legit military orders informing, like calling off the attacks on Kittery amongst these like, you know, normal uh, military units that will then be intercepted by Davian spies that then they're like, oh, that gives him he's he's trying to construct a narrative. Yeah. He's trying to make it not look like this targeted assassination, whatever. Uh, we got to spin it. Let's kind of put, you know, let's put some misinformation out there and see what sticks. What do you say? <laughs> huh? And also uh, try to get Romano to chill out. <laughs> Seriously, we can't be. This isn't this isn't working for me. This isn't working for, for everyone. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Uh, and also, watch what you say around her, okay? Don't be <laughs> come on, Sin Chang. Like come on, <laughs> yeah. You know, we can get some good out of it. Yeah, huh? pillow talk doesn't have to huh? involve work or Andy. Yeah, 
Yes. <laughs> He's having a bad time. It's a rough night. It's tough. The crisis team, it's, uh, you know, with great power, etc. I imagine lots of coffee, tea, and maybe even a little liquor. This is his fault, though. I mean, he, I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. Inevitably, this is, Justin is feeling a little of the repercussions of uh, his own actions, right? There is a little bit of a canumpance well, here. Well, well, well. Yeah, if it isn't the consequences of my actions. There, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely. I do feel like Justin, he's doing his job and trying to reconcile his choices simultaneously. I yeah. made a huge mistake. <laughs> it does show that Justin still has one foot back in his old life. Like, right. he hasn't completely severed ties to it. No. I feel like we really can see where he's at. Like, I'm always looking for the, is he looking out for Andy still? I feel like Andy's kind of this last little thread tying Justin to the Federated Sons. You know, he has a lot of ill will for a lot of people, a lot of his old friends and allies, but not Andy. He needs to relax. He's too tense, right? He's going to have a heart attack. This isn't, he needs to get some rest. He's got to get away from the work for a little bit. He's stressed out. They're stressing. And we'll have to find out if Justin manages to find some peace in the next chapter. Chapter 11. So we're still with Justin. He's so tense. Chapter starts... He goes out to the garden. It's this beautiful little, very meditative. I like that the chapter literally starts with him shutting the door on his office, right? It's literally, the chapter starts off with him leaving the problems of the last chapter behind, literally. Yeah, we're out in this beautiful outdoor garden area, crushed gravel walkways, shrubs and whatnot. We get, you know, there's a stone shrine in the center. And, uh, you know, golden Buddha. And, oh, it, I do like it mentions that three of the four moons were visible. Of Sion's four moons, we can see three of them. And Justin is so tense. So he decides, I'm going to do some Tai Chi. I'm going to practice my Tai Chi. Tai Back Chi to his old tricks. Yeah. Literally loosening up. You know, he's thinking about stuff. He's thinking about Romano. Why did she hit Kittery? Anyway, why Andy Redburn? Why did she, you know, I bet that he starts thinking like, oh, yeah, you know what? I bet that it was because she doesn't like, he stops himself, though. He thinks, oh, hold up, Justin. You're about to make assumptions, weren't you? You're about to jump to an unwise assumption. If you think about it from a different angle, okay? Maybe she wanted, you know, it could have made trouble in St. Ives. It's funny. I like this. He's trying to reframe it. Yeah. He starts thinking about taking it personally, but then he thinks better of it. And... However, he does decide that he should probably just place her under surveillance. I mean, I don't think he's wrong in this instance for feeling, making, it does feel a little personal, but. Yeah, it does. It's also good for him to try and look at it from any perspective so that, I mean, that's his job, right? That's part of the whole intelligence gathering thing, human, it's understanding people and why they do things. And it allows him to stay emotionally unattached. You've seen a spy movie. (laughs) Don't get too attached. That's the whole thing. 
Okay, so he's doing his Tai Chi. He's thinking about stuff. We hear footsteps approaching, and this is where Candace enters the garden. Candace Liao is here, and Justin. There goes the peace and quiet. Yeah, immediately does not want to be here. Justin <laughs> thinks that oh, I should I, I should probably leave as soon as he s- tries to slip away. Though he can't, she's too good. She immediately snaps over and snap snaps over is the right word. She comes in pretty hot. Yeah. She, she asked him, why are you looking here? Zhang? Uh, Justin, he's so funny though. He doesn't even, he's like, Oh, you know, I was here first. And he's like, I'm having a bad night. Yeah. I'm here the same reason you are probably. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh, I see. Of course. Well, you can go now. And Justin <laughs> tells her no. He says, no. I was here first. I said that. Nah. Nah. <laughs> nah. I think I had dibs. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing yes. my thing. Yes, he lays down the uh, ever-surmounted ritual of the dibs. So, yeah, from here on out in the conversation, he's doing Tai Chi. As he's talking to her, he continues doing his routine. So it becomes this... Uh, Subtle metaphor, he's making like parrying motions and whatnot with his hands. It's beautiful. But yeah, he tells her, I ain't leaving. I was here first. She gets even madder. How dare you speak to me like that citizen Xiang? And he pushes back again. He's uh he's he not having her... it. Yeah, he's like, Oh, I love this line. Hmm, you expose your ire to me, and I want no part of it. See, it's that easy, boys. Huh? You expose your ire to me. I want no part of it. <laughs> she apologizes, too. It works. And he just keeps doing the Tai Chi. And she apologizes. And then she realizes that she's really just mad at her sister. You know, I'm really just, she's so dumb. I hate her so much. And so Justin tells her, well, you should do some Tai Chi. Come on, check it out. It's pretty cool. He's doing the cool moves and stuff. Like, the whole time, he never stops. <laughs> the whole time he's like he's like talking to her. He's like he's he literally so goes no, and then says in summary, yeah. Have you tried relaxing instead? <laughs> yeah, but she can't. She's injured. <laughs> she's like no one tells me no. <laughs> so maybe maybe relaxing is something I should try. Justin tells her that she should do some tai chi with him, but she says that she can't really. She's injured or she has suffered an injury that she's her range of motion is significantly diminished she tosses her hair back okay and we see that there are scars all over her shoulder all right her you can see her shoulders really messed up and justin asked her when did it happen she says it happened 11 years ago and this part's crazy right (laughs) this is the bit where we realize that they faced each other in battle before on spica Remember Spica? This part's nuts. <laughs> Where they realized that it was Justin who injured her. Candace was in a Vindicator. Justin was in a Blackjack back on Spica. And they like chased each other through the jungle. They had a mech battle and Justin won and she ejected. Okay? But the canopy didn't blow away cleanly. It wasn't a clean ejection. And she was injured. And they even have this whole moment where they trade nightmares, right? When Candace is like, I, you know, I dreamt your blackjack kept chasing me. And Justin is like, I had a nightmare, but your vindicator, I think you're down, but you're actually not. It's like this whole thing. They have this whole moment. They have this shared trauma that they caused each other. 
Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They appear to bond over it. It's so nuts. I can't believe it. That was Candace and the Vindicator back on Spica. Again. It was Justin. Justin injured her in battle, just like Grey Noten injured him in the first book. Yes. God and Stackpole, they don't play with dice. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. What does it mean? They seem to feel the same and... way about it. Without bringing, at no point do they bring up how crazy this is verbally. So yeah, Justin and Candace have a moment. Justin touches her shoulder and forgive him. Candace presses her hand to his lips. She tells Justin that the doctors did the best they could, but she still has a pretty restricted range of motion. Justin asks Candace if she ever underwent physical therapy for her injury. Candace tells him that the therapist tried, but... Everyone was too afraid to push her because of her social standing that any time no one really wanted to challenge her. So it was difficult. She didn't have any like external. They were afraid. They were afraid that they would upset House Liao. Reasonably so. But well, we have seen a few Liao's upset and it does seem yeah. to be a pretty scary thing. Yeah, reasonably. Right in front of her, she's got this man who uh, appears to not be afraid of telling her no. Yeah. It may have given her an idea. Oh, I love where, yeah, when she says, oh, you know, I tried, but I didn't really. Justin, like, gets mad at her. He tells her, you should have had the discipline to do it yourself. You should have done it for you. <laughs> it's unacceptable. She's like, dang, he's right, though. So, of course, again, Justin has an idea. He's like, well, you know, you could do Tai Chi. Check it out. <laughs> he just continues to Tai Chi. Yeah. Tai Chi intensifies. I assume he is uh, more squared up with her, considering he was touching her shoulder. Yeah. He literally asked for it. <laughs> so, yeah, Candace at this point thinks, oh, okay, all right, I'll do some Tai Chi. And You want to do some you know, Tai you Chi? You can teach me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can teach me, too. You can be my personal, you can be my tutor. You'll be my Tai Chi tutor. Do you want to start immediately? And Justin's like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Homie's drowning, but he can't stop. He's yeah. lost. He's, he's drowning, but he's too thirsty. <laughs> yeah. In the That's what he's drowning in. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's how the chapter ends. Face it, Justin. You're lost, bud. You got to face it, man. You're lost, bro. You knew the job was dangerous when you took it, but now you've gone looking for trouble and found it in spades. Big trouble in House Liao. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of part one. That's the, like, that's the, the end, end, of, the end of part one. Yeah. It's with punctual. Justin can continuing to escalate the amount of danger he's in. He just can't help times. it. He just can't help it. <laughs> he's like, what if I play Nor with this he. fire over here? Yeah. yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> he got in a fight with one rifleman, and next thing he knows, <laughs> he's Candace, he's, dude. I love this, by the way. I love that this is the end of the first book. Yeah, I love it's so it, funny. feels very punctual. Yeah. I, I love it, adds this layer of suspense back because Justin, he wasn't really in a spot of like danger, right? <laughs> Before this, right? He he was kind of he I mean he was in trouble, right? He was gonna have to he was gonna get an ass chewing from what happened. Yeah. But like 
this really ups the tension in the Justin section of the story. Yeah. In like the best way possible, because I love this. I love their little, they have this little like secret romantic, th- this romantic garden yeah. interlude. I love it. I do too. <laughs> I'm here for it. Well, as somebody like myself who has read a lot of Korean manhwas, <laughs> I do feel like this chapter got tainted for me by those with the it, it to me my brain immediately went to like a cheesy romance scene is like some face-off tear like he's taking his fingers and dragging it down the scars <laughs> and you're like oh that's wild to me but like i said that might <laughs> be just due to the amount well, of bad media I've consumed. Well, you know, you mm. and the 12 other Americans that have read Korean manhwas, <laughs> you guys can all you know, skip this part, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to face the consequences of our own actions. It's a mistake, my friend. It's growing in popularity. <laughs> no. There's more than you think. There's more than you would think. Well, okay. There's yeah. dozens of us. <laughs> yeah, this chapter's cool. When I would think back to this book, when I would think about Warrior Repost, I would, I, I remember, I would often think about this scene though. I would think, oh yeah, that's when where Justin is doing the Tai Chi and Candace comes out and uh, then he, yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. This just ends up being a very, this is when Justin and Candace kind of, kind of get together and then like that's the end of part one. And that's pretty funny. This moment though, you're right. This, uh, you kind of alluded to it. This moment has repercussions that, uh, well, well, we'll have to find out what those repercussions are next week when we continue on to part two of Warrior Repost. This was another episode of Of Mechs and Men. I am Cannon Hill. I was joined as usual by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron. As always, we would like to thank the author, Michael A. Stackpole, and of course, all the other writers and artists. Who worked so hard to keep Battletech alive? We would like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. We have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, corrections, please, advice at heat.management. We're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, of Mexamen. One word. We're also on the Valhalla Club Discord. You can find that in the uh, description we usually hang out there and uh you can pretty much directly interact with us pretty regularly there yeah it's also a cool spot lots of other podcasters have booths in the valhalla club check it out we will return next week to continue our discussion of warrior repost by michael a stackpole until then till next time say la. 